To ornate stairwells. I'm Autumn. I'm joined as always by Neve. Hi, I'm Neve. Um, it's a movie podcast. We watched a whole bunch of movies. Let's get into it. You watched yeah, You've Got Mail. Me. Yeah, I watched You've Got Mail. People can go listen. People should go listen to the repertory screenings about it. Good one. Um, I don't know if I have that much to add, especially if people have also listened to Around the Long Fire, where I briefly talk about it with M. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I think I'm a little bit closer to M than to like Jackson, but I also fully understand the Jackson, like the, the latent racism just like boiling under the surface of this movie is wild. <laughs> just the, like these rich white people exist in a world where like a uh, slightly contemptible, but charming thing about a man is that he can charm the help. Well, it's just like a thing in you've got mail. I'm shaking. It's also just, ex- just extremely, it's like, in so many, like, every single scene, not just the scenes that are specifically about this, like, relationship to the internet that existed then and doesn't exist now, mm-hmm. where, like, a laptop is, like, new. The idea of, like, checking your email is a thing that you're, like, slightly shameful about. The idea of meeting people online is starting to happen, but is still, like, a thing that is, like, oh, what does this mean? Like, the idea that you could make a relationship online feels strange and new. Which is just... I just know lots and lots of people who... I know lots of people who are like dating people who they haven't met in, before in person because mm-hmm. they've just been dating online for like a year and they haven't been able to travel because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, but even beyond all of that, just like the very specific portrayal, one of like bookstores, right? That's yeah. gone, yeah. And then also just like the very specific portrayal of like these white New Yorkers, uh huh. You just also that wouldn't happen anymore. You wouldn't make a movie about these people. No. No. <laughs> it's wild. It's great, though. I've, I've seen it, much like M described on the podcast, I've seen this on cable about a million times. Yeah. Never, never once in my life have I began You've Got Mail and uh, finished so, You've Got Mail. So it's kind of just a mess. We, uh, I should, I should, because we're doing Titanic yeah. soon uh-huh. for um, Blockbusters. Uh-huh. Which people can, $5 to uh, Abnormal Mapping. A timely podcast by accident. Yeah, um, that cult classic, Titanic. Yeah. But like, so basically my mom's three, fi- well, no, there's, there's some additional ones. But like of this sort, the, my mom's three favorite movies were uh, You've Got Mail, Sleepless in Seattle, and Titanic. And so all of those I've also seen multiple times straight through because she would put them on. Right. Also included this is uh, Babette's Feast and Chocolat, but that feels like slightly of a different thing. Yeah, that's a different thing. Um, and then Dr. Zhivago, she would always talk about being great, but we never watched. <laughs> I think I watched it once when I was like very little. I barely remember it. Um, but yeah. Huh. <clears throat> um, I was thinking of my dad more as a movie person mm-hmm. than my mom. 
But my mom had her movies. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I did an A minus for stairs. There's a lot of stairs throughout the movie. Um, some of them are pretty nice. But also there's no like real stairwell scene in the way that I want to like get it higher than an A minus. That makes sense. You know? You want to talk um, about a movie with a real stairwell scene? Yeah, we can watch, or we can talk about RoboCop. That, that movie fucking whips. That movie fucking whips, dude. <laughs> uh, that movie's great. Um, I preview, uh, I think, oh, well, you can do, because people can listen to RoboCop and RoboCop to yeah, yeah, yeah. other podcasts. But Preview for the next few things that I'm going to talk about as we get through this list we've got here. I felt like I struck out a bunch on movies this week. I feel like... I like watched things that I was really expecting to like, and then kind of came away not really liking them or disliking them a, a bunch of times. Um, I was looking at my letterbox diary today. Oh, I was like, "Shit, dude, Robocop's so good." We're getting a delivery uh, actively of dumplings. Ooh, thank you. So, um, steamed bow specifically. Um, happy Lunar New Year. They have teriyaki vegetables in here. Okay, cool. We're not just going to, like, eat these on the podcast, but we can maybe let them cool slightly. Yeah. And then we'll, like, take a little break. Yeah. To eat. That'll probably help, because I can already feel the tired coming back. <laughs> yeah. Um, Robocop. Uh, Robocop. So, first and foremost, uh, by the time you're listening to this, either in the free feed or in the Patreon feed, you can go listen to the part of my franchise about um, Robocop. Um, and did you also watch RoboCop 2? No, I haven't watched that yet. I'll probably rewatch it this week, but in a way where I, I feel less strongly about wanting to talk about it. Yeah, totally. I, by the time you hear this, if you are, well, yeah, once again, free feed or Patreon feed, you will be able to go listen to, pardon my franchise about RoboCop 2. RoboCop 2, good movie, really enjoyable movie, four stars. It ain't fucking RoboCop, motherfucker. Yeah. Um, Paul Verhoeven is just good yeah. at, like, this. Yeah. Um, this is one of my favorites from him. I mean, especially, like, in this mold. Like, this is... I like this way more than Total uh, Total Recall. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly, like... I think some of it is that... And this is the thing that I said to you. Uh, I think a lot of his movies that are, like, in this satire mold feel like he was given a script that was not satire. Hmm. And then he, like, did his best to make fun of the script while shooting the movie. Yeah, I feel like this... Um... Or, like, be very tongue-in-cheek about him fully aware of, like, how stupid this plot... Like, how, like... uh, Not, like, stupid in just, like, a derisive way, but, like, how, like, ideologically stupid this is. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, Verhoeven, I think, pulls things out of the script for RoboCop that are maybe not there necessarily. Yeah. You you'll read tons of uh essays that are about like big blockbuster um cat snuck in when Emily brought us dumplings. Yeah. Um I mean we won't let the cat in and then we when we take the break I can just scoot the cat out. Okay. It'll be easier if the cat's in here. Um I mean I'm just going to leave the door slightly ajar so we can come and go. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, it, it is kind of this like um, 
Like he's like aware of the hidden curriculum that exists mm-hmm. in movies and that you might read academic papers that are pulling that out and talking about how, oh, this like big blockbuster action movie is actually like reinscribing things around the military industrial complex or whatever. Yeah. And then he just like makes the movie that is talking about that. Yeah. That is just like making that this is what the movies are playing. Yes. He is like like he's he's putting images all over the movie, and I don't necessarily just mean the 24 images per second that, that are in every movie. I mean, like, TVs and commercials and posters and um, all these things are, like, just saturating this movie. And then the other thing that's happening in this movie is that you are collapsing military hero, cowboy, superhero, cop, all into one figure of American masculinity that is, like, valorized in this movie. Yeah. Um... And Verhoeven just sees the, like, And, inherent... like, the American hero. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like, all of those things become one thing in the movie to to highlight, like, the ways in which America propagandizes to itself, you yeah. know? Um, and that's not even the shit that, like, is in dialogue, you know? Like, that's not, like, that's just, like, interpreting images happening on the screen. That's not even, like, the themes that are being spoken about constantly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's... It's particularly focused on, like, one, a thing that was, like, actively happening at the time. I feel like for a lot of people, at least, like, when I've looked back through uh, more archival stuff, like, when I was doing um, work at Media Burn Archive and uh-huh. things, like, the the Rodney King trial and then, like, the L.A. riots. Mm-hmm. The L.A. riots in particular became this, like, big focal point because it was this huge news event. It was this huge news event about riots happening and then, like police like the LAPD in tanks mm-hmm. you know yeah uh just like the the degree that like uh machinery used for like war mm-hmm. is just being rolled into like streets by like the own their own police force um and this was already happening but like i feel like that was a big focal point where like it was hard for people to ignore that that's what it was happening yeah um and this is also talking about that where like Everything is um I the Rodney King stuff was after. I yeah, but, I yeah. I'm just looking up the exact year because I remember um um I'm like March third, nineteen ninety one is uh when he's uh beaten by the LA police. Yeah, I was yeah, just and then lo- the riots were a, a bit later. Yeah. I was just looking it up to situate it all in my head. Yeah. I, I knew obviously like I've I've seen the thing of like HW Bush just kind of like Walking around LA looking like a moron, <laughs> being yeah. like, Oh, this race stuff, huh? What can yeah. you do? Um, anyway, and so I think that's part of what's in here, and then it's specifically tying it to like the, the comic book hero, yeah, absolutely, so. yeah. Um, the cowboy's definitely in here as well with like the spinning and everything, uh, but I feel like it's it's some of that's just in the 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 cowboy is part of the iconography of the hero for cinema mm-hmm. that like a lot of American heroes will will have like the revolver and those kinds of things even though they don't have like the rest of the drapings. Yeah. Well, and then you, by by accessing like the movie's like relationship to comic books, you also get into what comic books were coming out in 1987. It's uh, like what's popular is um, Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, um, uh, Sandman is either is starting or is on the way. Swamp Thing is going by this point. 
Um, Judge Dredd, obviously, like all those British guys who are making the comics I'm talking about, yeah. plus Frank Miller. Star- RoboCop is very Judge Dredd. Yes. Um, and the whole thing about a lot of that stuff is the like postmodern irony, um, satire, like all those things together about what superheroes are. And it's just like, oh, they just did that. They just ported that over to cinema. Yeah. And, I, and <laughs> I truly, I like, what are you doing, jackass? <laughs> um, Like, it's there in the script. It's all there in the script because, like, um, when the guy, the guy who wrote the first movie, or the guys who wrote the first movie, when they got fired from writing the sequel, they suggested Alan Moore and Frank or Frank Miller do RoboCop two, um, and so like they know they're reading Watchmen almost like they have to be, um, but like I think Verhoeven just like brings so much more out of it than uh, is necessarily on the page. I think it's all. I think so much of it comes out of like the the stuff that's on the screen, you know. Yeah. So it it's really remarkable. Yeah. Um, uh, also, just a good fucking action movie. Also, just a great fucking action movie. <laughs> that's also what he's good at is that he does the thing, but also it's just it's just good. Yeah. You know, there's some stuff that's like kind of trying to do satire, and then that's its whole shtick. Yeah, and then it's and then like it forgets to be like an entertaining movie too. Yes. Yes. So. Um, uh, RoboCop 2, if I remember, uh, not as good. Uh, there is a certain charm in having some like 13 year olds playing 10 year olds saying fuck a lot. Yes. Um, <laughs> so S for stairs for RoboCop for reasons we discussed last week. Um, here's what I remember about RoboCop 2 is texting you while high as shit, A minus for stairs in RoboCop 2. And then. 20 minutes later, something else happening that made me think, ah, we're going to bump it up to an A. Now, you will recall moments ago, I said I was high as shit. So do I remember those stairs? No. No, I do not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It happens. RoboCop 2 is fun, though. RoboCop 2 is a lot of fun. You should rewatch it. We, We probably won't go as long about RoboCop 2. Yeah. Should I talk about the other two? More people go listen to other podcasts on our podcast. Yes. Um, so I watched the the two Columbo pilots mm-hmm. because um, uh, that reprise show, you know, the one that my wife loves. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing Columbo. Uh-huh. Uh, specifically Total Reprise, which for this season is my wife. She loves that reprise show. Uh-huh. Just for people who didn't get the joke. Yeah. Um, Audioentropy.com. Yes. Uh, so I watched the first two pilots. Uh, basically, I, I, I watched the first one, like, the day that their first episode came out on it, um, and then listened to it, and then immediately watched the next one for next week. Um, and I'm just going to watch along, so I'll probably talk about them a little bit on the podcast if there's anything more of note, but I wanted to kind of initially talk about them at least. I've seen, like, the first six or seven episodes of Columbo, so I will start um, following along in a few weeks, you know? Yeah. Um. You, just, um, you have Richard Irving as director for uh, Prescription Murder. It's Steven Spielberg. Um, that's all. Wait, is it? Yeah. Prescription Murder is Steven Spielberg? Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
No, it's not. Yes, it is. Go look. Um, Steven Spielberg, Spielberg directed. Okay, well, look at look at Columbo, because like Spielberg directed one of the pilots to Columbo. I. Hey, stop eating plastic. Um, um, murder by the book. Murder by the book. Okay. Um, is that the first actual episode? I don't know. I don't know why I thought prescription murder was. Maybe is so. If you're pulling this in the plex, and you're doing like I think the big, uh, legal way to get files of Columbo. Mm-hmm. Because it's all on Internet Archive too. Yeah. But whatever. Um, it it they do it as like a season, but then it pulls it in and it doesn't register the pilots. They'll do them as the first episode. I'm not even thinking about that. I'm thinking of a big title card that says "Directed by Steven Spielberg," but I must just be remembering the wrong episode. "Murder by the Book" is a good one. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I was like, I specifically looked into this as I was doing it. Okay. Well. I guess I've just been wrong all this time. Murder by the Book's a good one. Uh, look okay. forward to that. Um. Anyway, uh, prescription murder. Um, and it's weird because I think like, in terms of like it trying to be a standalone movie or something, prescription murder is better. Mm-hmm. Um, you you get like the, uh, you know, shitty guy who murders his husband. The thing about Columbo is that like you. I'm assuming this is just the the shtick for all the episodes, but mm-hmm. at least these two, you like see the murder at the beginning. Yeah. You know who the murderer it is. Murderer is Columbo comes in and then is trying to figure it out, and then a lot of it is like Columbo putting them on the their back heel constantly. Yeah, the 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 the, the well, joy of, often still actively trying to cover it up. The joy of Columbo is that the man has a sixth sense for murder, um, and like truly like. Just, he <laughs> has new type flashes for murder, walks into a room and knows who did it. And that is the joy of Columbo is that you're like, how's he, how did he figure it out? You know, I mean, not... I mean, yeah, I mean, part of it, releasing these first two is like, you know, who's most often the murderer mm-hmm. is the spouse. Yeah. yeah. So he kind of just starts from there. Which, so which one is prescription murder? Is that the one that ends with the big fake out in the pool? Yep. Okay. And then ransom for a dead man is the one that starts with the murder happening in the glasses, right? Um, you see the montage of him like hiding the body. No, it's like uh, the woman, and she like shoots her husband. And then there's the okay, uh, and you get like weird. Does a glass table shatter? I don't think so. I'm thinking of the next episode then. Yeah. Never mind. Um, and then her, like, the the husband's daughter, who's, like, she's the stepmom, too, comes back from her trip or her, like, study abroad in Austria or whatever. And then it's just, like, a shitty little rich girl, and but then becomes the thing that, like, undoes her. Because oh, okay. she suspects oh, her yes, as well yes, 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 and yes, is yes, then yes, like yes, yes, in yes, the yes. house. So she's able to like mess with her being able to be alone and doing things. This is all coming back to me now. Yeah. Um. So anyway, I think prescription murder as like a concept, as like a, a thing, like it makes sense that it's a play as well because um, a lot of it becomes this like conversation that happens between the murderer and Columbo at one point where it's like, uh, what kind of man would murder and like talking about like uh, this idea of like, oh, 
it's not um like it's not a mental illness to be a murderer it's not like you're insane if you murder uh like this is about morals it's not about like mental faculty and you know like uh insanity sanity these sorts of concepts mm-hmm. um and then that also being like and then like how does someone get into the position where they then morally justify for themselves murder uh that kind of stuff but it's also the kind of stuff where like i watched it and i was like man i should watch rope i've never watched rope I bet rope is I bet rope is better than this. You know? Like I, it's like dealing with concepts, but also in a way where like it's a made for TV movie that I don't think is like like there's some interesting stuff there, but it's the part that I find interesting, I feel like other things have delved into more. I guess I go the other way where I watch I watch Columbo I almost said Robocop. I watch Columbo to like kind of um just enjoy Peter Falk and the acting and I don't I never am thinking about the mystery in Columbo. Well, yeah, but that's the, so the thing with, with prescription murder is that it wants to have some interesting things to say about what it, like the, the mindset of a murderer and ideas of morality and things like that. And when I'm doing that, I'm like, well, then I don't want to be watching a Columbo episode. I want to go watch rope. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, totally. Whereas I watch ransom for a dead man. And I think it's less ambitious in terms of what it's trying to talk about, but it's a more fun episode. Yeah. Because it's just some like ridiculous acting and Peter Falk being Peter Falk on the screen. Actual actual angel. actual real life angel <laughs> come to earth and turned human. <laughs> um we need to like try and get totally reprised to like further propagate this idea. Uh this fact that we have discovered yes. that Peter Falk is an actual angel who came to Earth and decided to become the actor Peter Falk. I okay. If there if you handed me a button right now that said, I, I I press it and one random person somewhere on Earth dies, but Molly watches Wings of Desire and really likes it. I'd press it. Yeah. the 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 real gamble is I don't know that she'd like it, but if she liked it, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Psychology of a murderer. Yeah. You would do it just to yeah. to get your girlfriend to watch. Yeah. Wings of I, Desire. I, nothing would make me happier than my girlfriend liking Wings of Desire. Yeah. Um. So anyway, I enjoyed Ransom for a Dead Man more. Uh, but also, it was extremely frustrating because I feel like there's going to be episodes where I'm just like, oh man, I just want Columbo to just like fuck this person up. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit more there with prescription murder. Mm-hmm. With this, I was just like... I want this lady to get away with murder and I want her to murder her like shitty daughter too. Yeah. I just like, just let her have the money. Uh, the whole thing, like explanation comes about of like, Oh, she only got this position through like him being a successful, uh, but attorney. And so then she became one as well. And so, uh, and then he, she wanted him to step down and she wanted to like continue to pursue her dreams. I'm like, let her pursue her goddamn dreams. Yeah. She's From- working in a sexist thing. And you're, you're all saying the only reason why she's able to be a successful attorney is because she has a wealthy husband who's successful. Att- Fuck off. All of you should die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from here they're really gonna lean into we need to make all these people really hateable, or you get the <laughs> occasional really special guest star like like Shatner. During in the Shatner episodes, you don't want Shatner to get caught. He's William fucking Shatner. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like, but for the most part, they're really gonna lean into no, we gotta make the rich people more hateable. 
Like yeah. the, so much of the appeal of Columbo is here's just this blue collar detective who's going to take down these like white collar criminals. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I I just really wanted her. Yeah. No, no. The Also find a way in all of this to kill her, her stepdaughter and also get away with it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, I don't think that there are stairs in prescription murder. It felt very, again, it makes sense that this is based, like, the script was for a play. Yeah. Um, A lot of it is, like, taking place in rooms, and so you don't see a lot of, like, going places. You see people just going into sets. Uh Uh-huh. There is in Ransom for a Dead Man this, like, and it's, like, when the, the daughter is, like, fully confronting um the the mother who's the murderer or you know stepmother who's the murderer uh and it it's like really the beginning of a lot of the stuff starting to unravel and it's like her coming down the stairs in like this big house um so a you know could have been a better stairwell scene but like it was an ornate staircase and it was an important scene for the the story so um but anyway people can go listen to yeah. totally reprise and yeah Absolutely. Hear more about all of this. Um, do you want to do the long goodbye, or should we take a break and eat? Let's take a break and eat. Okay. Every day When some passerby Invites your eye To come her way Even as she smiles A quick hello You let her go You let the moment fly Too late you turn your head You know you said The long goodbye Can you recognize the theme On some other street Two people meet As in a dream Running for a plane through the rain If the heart is quicker than the eye They could be lovers Until they die When a missed hello becomes a Running for a plane through the rain 
If the heart is quicker than the eye They could be lovers Until they die It's too late to try mm -hmm. When I miss hello Try to be nice to me now, I'm leaving and it's goodbye. I ain't running after you in the rain when you're catching a plane. No more goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. I'm through, I'm through this time and I mean it. In fact, I don't know if I ever even did like you, except for your body. Your body was good. Well, let's, let's say so long. So put some music in there, the long goodbye. You know what's great is that you could put the long goodbye <laughs> in here. Um, I guess so. Okay, so... Just the entire audio of the movie? No, no, there's a, <laughs> there's a song. It's a long goodbye. <laughs> okay. How to talk about this movie. I think this is going to run counter to what, I, what I'm going to end up saying about Skinamarink in our main segment. We never talked about... We never talked about... <laughs> Yeah, we should talk about what happened. We should talk about what happened. You know what? I'll okay. Pause. We'll circle back to long goodbye. So what had happened was on Friday night, Friday afternoon, you finished watching Double Zeta Gundam. Yep. Friday night, I come over for dinner. We're gonna watch um, Smooth, Smooth Talk. Talk after dinner. You joke. Well, I really should. Watch Shark's Counterattack at some point. I don't know when I'm going to have time. So, do you want to watch Shark's Counterattack tonight? You're like kind of smiling and joking. I'm like, well, my joke was just like, we should, what if we watch Shark's Counterattack? And then you're like, don't tempt me, basically. Don't tempt me. And then I, this is where I'm starting to think about it. And I'm like, okay. Like, Emily and I are also enjoying watching movies. Uh huh. Right now. Um, there's like a, some evening before I have to record about Iron Blooded Orphans, I want to have watched Shara's Counterattack, which means at some point this week I have to watch it. Um, maybe we just watch. Maybe I just watch it with somebody else who's going to enjoy it rather than me being in my little corner. Yeah. Well, Emily's just like watching TV, and I'm just like chilling in my little corner. Yeah. With like a little laptop or you know whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we can just watch that. We'll podcast about it. Yeah. Um. And then... so my joke turns into me talking myself into. Well, actually, this would be better because then I have more time that I can spend with Emily and not just like being a weirdo watching an anime movie. Yeah. And then, I I really love Shadow's Counterattack still. On this, my, like, fourth or fifth watching. But I kind of felt, like, not excited about it. I felt like you and I had sort of mismatched reactions to it. Um, um, and I, I just... I still haven't told you my new type flash that I had about it. I'm, I'm excited, we'll to, hear, I'm excited to hear that. But I kind of felt like this is not... I don't want to do a, a Shars counterattack episode, you know? Partially because I don't want to litigate Shars counterattack, partially for other reasons. We'll get into it when we get there in the list. So you also watched Skinamarink, and I was like, oh, I'll try to watch Skinamarink sometime between now and, like, the Sunset Boulevard one, you know? Yeah. I was like, I'll watch Skinamarink soon. We'll talk about Skinamarink soon. And I just, I, I didn't feel good about doing a Char's Counterattack episode, so I made sure 
that I watched Skinner Marink before this one. So this is one of the rare stairwells where we watch the movie separately. But um, I, I I sort of was just like, we're going to do a Skinner Marink episode. And thank God, I really fell for that movie. We'll get there when we get there. But Skinner Marink is really fucking good. And I'm excited to talk yeah. about it when we get to the main segment. So... We'll see. I feel like we have similar reads on it, although you were very scared by it and I was not. Scary so. movie, scary movie, scary. I know, but I'll talk about why I didn't. Yeah, no, I know why. I know why. Anyway, it's because uh, I cried instead. Uh, <laughs> Spoilers. Those are the, for the two, end of the conversation. Those are the two reactions to horror. Um, this was my reaction to Silent Hill Three. Is that I, Silent Hill Two, I can't play because it it's too scary. Silent Hill Three, I can't play because it it's too sad. <laughs> Silent Hill 3 is fucking sad, dude. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll get there in a minute. The Long Goodbye. So, oh, I here's the reason I brought this up. Skin and Ring, I watched it, and I was like, oh my god, this movie's so good. Oh my god, this movie's great. I was, oh my god, this movie. And then I went on, read a bunch of letterbox reviews. All right, I skimmed, because people really do be writing 3,000 words in their letterbox reviews of Skin and Marink. It's yeah. not that serious. <laughs> yeah. Just get a podcast. <laughs> Just get a podcast. It's truly not that serious. So I skimmed some, and it sort of like brought me down to like, oh, right, it's just a movie. I like movies. This is a movie that really wowed me in a way I wasn't expecting. Okay, I can have a normal reaction to this. I, you know, I'm, I I looked at the movies I saw, I've watched so far this year. Skin and Marink ain't RoboCop. Skin and Marink ain't, ain't even the best movie I've watched this year. It's just a really good movie. You know, I sort of grounded myself. I had the opposite thing happen with Long Goodbye, where I was really enjoying it, and then at about the halfway point, I had to go to the restroom, and while I was in the restroom, I was, like, reading, um, like, the the reception. I was reading stuff on Wikipedia, basically. I was trying to figure out, like, you know, just... What's the background of this movie? Why did this get made? You know, that sort of stuff. And I, I looked at the reception section, and it's all this stuff about how it's satire or or it's, um, it, like, it's satirical in nature. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is not satirical. And then I, like, kind of came back to watching the movie, and now having this, like, this is how it was received. Like, everybody... Ebert, Pauline Kael, Siskel, uh, other famous reviewers who were working in the 70s. Um, like, names I recognize. Everybody's like, oh, this is a satirical movie. And I'm like, is it? And I, like, kind of came back to watching it, and I sort of saw the satirical element, and I was like, this kind of defangs the movie. I kind of liked it better when I thought it was doing all this stuff, like, playing it straight, but just kind of funny, you know, rather than, yeah. like... Like the, the 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 common read on this movie is that it's it's making fun of noir. It's making fun of various genre conventions of noir films, the private detective. Um and it's doing this it's doing this in a very, very dry way. This is directed by Robert Altman. This is the first Robert Altman film I've ever seen, but I know that he is a big influence on the Coens. Yeah. Um and I can see a direct line from his sense of humor to their sense of humor. It's so dry. It's so um, underplayed. But it's also, at the same time, a little overdone, if that makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> um, there's 
in Tokyo Drifter, there's the there's the song Tokyo Nagaraimono, and they play that song a million times, and it's kind of just the movie's never winking at you in Tokyo Drifter, right? The movie's yeah. never saying, "Oh, isn't it so stupid how this song keeps playing." In The Long Goodbye, there's a song, The Long Goodbye, written by John Williams. It's a fantastic song. And it's like the song plays over and fucking over in the movie. <laughs> like literally every five minutes. And at a certain point, it becomes a joke. And the movie's winking at you. Isn't it stupid when these like Bond themes play in these stupid fucking uh, movies? And it's like... I kind of just, you got John Williams to write a really good, like, Bond theme ripoff. Just play it straight. You did, yeah. like, you you just had <laughs> the cool thing. You have Elliot Gould giving a world-class performance. He's, Elliot Gould's incredible in this movie. Stop wasting him on, like, poking fun at how, how dumb the character is yeah. when you could just have Elliot Gould playing this character straight. This is, like, the same, Columbo is on TV right now. Like, Elliot Gould and Columbo, like, these two detective characters are not that far apart. But for some reason, like, Altman is just so sardonic about it in a way that, like, really just, like, took my enjoyment out of the movie. Which sucked because, like, until I read this way that people read it, I didn't have that. I thought, well, this is just kind of a... Kind of a pastiche, kind of just a regular ass noir movie, you know? Yeah. And when I was watching it with that in mind, I was enjoying it a lot more. Um, it's also, as the movie goes on, it just gets more and more and more heightened and ridiculous and absurd. Um, so to where maybe I would have come to this reaction naturally. But yeah, it did. I don't know. I like the movie a lot. I gave it four stars on Letterboxd. Um, there's a lot to like in this movie. Elliot Gould's amazing. The score is great. Um, even though it's it's making fun of noir stuff, which you know noir stuff is very dear to my heart. Yeah. But it's making... It has that Mel Brooks element of you can only make fun of noir this much when you've watched a million noir movies and you actually kind of like them. And so, like... Even when it's making fun of it, it is just a serviceable noir. And so from that angle, I really liked it. The It does the third man ending. Um, like it does the exact same ending from the third man, but played in a different manner. Like played in reverse almost. Yeah. Uh, and it works. It like totally works. Like the ending works. It's just that the journey lost me at a certain point maybe. So... Uh, I recommend The Long Goodbye. I just didn't maybe get the thing I wanted from it. Yeah. So, and it, and the thing that I last thought about it is that it's annoying because that critique of it is sitting more in my head than in the moment to moment of watching it. I just really liked it, you know? Yeah. And then it's like when I walk away from the movie, I I have this criticism rather than the stuff I liked about it. Um, I also last thing I think this movie is doing deliberate homages to Tokyo Drifter and I think if Robert Altman denied that I think he'd be a fucking liar I think it's doing deliberate homages to Tokyo Drifter you cannot convince me otherwise (laughs) that okay that's it yeah um so 
I watched, uh, so I have a few movies that I got from that rare film M mm-hmm. site, um, that I got specifically because they kind of felt like they're in that like realm of the made for TV, like skinamaxy kind of stuff, uh-huh. uh, which if people are new here, I just have a weird fondness for some of that stuff. Um, as somebody who had like extreme insomnia in high school, which meant flipping through a lot of channels. It was often, do I want to watch the same stuff on Adult Swim that I've already seen like five times? Do I want to watch weird infomercials or do I want to flip over to where they're like playing some extremely softcore porno? And sometimes you just watch that because it's just something new and there's sometimes weird, interesting stuff in it. And also like there's boobs and things. Yeah. But like a lot of it for me was coming as somebody, especially who's demisexual, where I didn't like. You, I experience you, you, attraction in a way different than other people. I watch it in this like weird fascination of like, oh, this is how people think about sex. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so I thought this was gonna be one of those. It's not a like Skinamax movie. It it was an actual film. Um, it's named. It's called Delusion. <laughs> so I, derogatory. I just, in a way. Well, I'll get it anyway. Uh, it's the directorial debut of Carl Colpert. Um, why does it sometimes serve up like I, this? Feels like it's the mobile one. Yeah, it's I don't doing know this to people now. Why it does this? Um, I'm just looking at. Oh, I guess he did do. It's there's no link to it. Maybe it was like a short film or something. Um, yeah, I. I mean, none of these seem like that big of movies. No. Um. Anyway. Uh, it's kind of trying to do like a little bit of a noir thing or like a little bit of like a, a crime road movie thing. Uh, so this, uh, guy, um, his company like basically lays off a, a whole bunch of like an entire like department that has been working on this big project that he cares a lot about. And so he decides he's going to embezzle money from the company, uh, and like leave the company. Uh, and then go start a new company with the money with the people who are working on that project because he believes so much in it. And, like, I don't know how he thinks he's going to get away with this, but this is his plan. And for some reason, they have to go to Nevada because of the way that, like, tax laws and business laws or something are set up. This makes it possible. A lot of this stuff is not explained. This is not really the beef that I have with the movie. He's on the road and uh, ends up running into a couple whose car is broken down. Um, the guy is just talking in the most ridiculous, like the the actor is like trying to put on this like accent to be the character, but it just feels like so weird and phony and forced. Um, and then there's this woman uh, who I think is a better actress, but also isn't that great of an actress. And a large part of this like film has to be, conversations in the car that they are having and sometimes it's like the even when they're acting well the writing is not quite there for it to be the kind of interesting conversations you want to have in a road movie like this Mm. but also it's often bad especially when you get that one guy in it with his weird stupid accent (laughs) and then it's just annoying um and then it just like escalates and takes weird plot twists where like there's one part where she decides towards the very end to sleep with the it turns out that like the guy who they pick the the guy who's driving the embezzler I'll just refer to him as embezzler um and then there's the man and the woman 
with the broken down car. The, that man with the broken down car turns out to actually be an assassin who's been hired to kill him because he embezzled money. Mm-hmm. Um, presumably he doesn't know. He knows who's like employing him, but he doesn't know who his employer is taking money from. That's like part of the arrangement, but presumably it has to do something with the embezzling anyway. Um, and so there's stuff like with them becoming antagonistic and everything. And the woman is like dating the assassin. I'll refer to him as, um, but not in like a, I also, I don't remember any of the characters names because this movie was bad and it kind of, a lot of it fell out of my head. <laughs> um, but like not really involved in his business. And so there's this part towards the very end of the movie where she decides to sleep with the embezzler for kind of unclear reasons. Um, and then the uh, assassin guy gets really upset and there's like a big final showdown and stuff. Um, but this is the part that was also the most like, cause in general, this movie just wasn't good. Um, and also it just wasn't as go, me going into it, wanting something skinamaxy. It, I wasn't actually getting like interesting stuff around what I want when I'm watching that kind of movie. So I was also just disappointed where like, I'm used to bad acting and writing in that, but there's like something interesting about the way that people are talking about sex, even when they're doing it poorly that I find interesting to observe because it's just like weird it's interesting to look at like how people conceive of this and how they talk about it on film as like this weird softcore porno Mm -hmm. there's like something interesting to me in that even when the acting and writing is bad because there's still it's still revealing things about the way that people think about sex right um but this like i didn't quite get that because one you don't actually get like any of the actual sex when they have like the embezzler and the woman have sex. Right. That gets entirely alighted. Um, and I think you could get interesting things there if they were actually trying to depict it. And then the only like actual kind of sex thing you get is when the assassin comes and then like, uh, finding out that she slept with him, like vindictively assaults her. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, this sucks. Like, like there's nothing interesting or fun in this. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and the end. Also, there are no stairs, so uh, like it's a road movie in Nevada. There's no fucking stairs. F. But yeah, <laughs> I I was like disappointed. I was very disappointed in it. But also, I was watching it, being like, sometimes you just have to watch a truly bad film to like reset. Because before I went into this, I was like, man, I give a lot of like fives, fours. Like sometimes I do like a three or a three and a half. And I'm like, is this, is my bottom really just like three, three and a half? And then I watched this movie and I was like, oh no, no. It's just, you watch like movies that are usually going to at least be a three. Yeah. You know? Do you, uh, well, <clears throat> on that note, I maybe want to switch the next two things I'm supposed to talk about here. Cause I'll just get the thing that I did not really care for off the our plate. hard eight. Yeah. Um, well, but now I can't do the joke where I go from Ocean's 8 to being, talk about Hard 8. It's not that good of a joke. It's not that good of a joke. <laughs> <laughs> also, right. I just made the joke. Yeah. It's not that good of a joke. Um. So I don't mean to cut you off from talking about delusion. No, I'm done like talking were... about delusion. And, yeah. yeah. I don't recommend it. Unless you want to reset your gauge for liking movies. <laughs> there there's a part where I was like I just can't and I I like I can't just like I like I want to see this through. 
but I just can't deal with like this movie right now. So I put it on 1.5 speed, Mm -hmm. which I very occasionally do for movies. Yeah. And then as I was getting to like a half hour left, I put it to two X because I was just like, I need this movie to be done. (laughs) I did. I, I put something on 1.5 speed. Um, I I, like never put movies on 1.5 or. I hardly ever do, but I did it for something. Uh, We'll talk about it in a minute. But before we get there, Heart 8. I, okay, okay. Heart 8. People who don't know, it is the debut film from Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, one of my absolute favorite directors. Um, I had Paul Thomas Anderson on the mind because um, Inherent Vice is kind of a remake of The Long Goodbye, but way the fuck better than The Long Goodbye. If you if you're listening to this podcast and you've not watched Inherent Vice, you've got to watch that shit. That shit's good. Um, and I had Paul Thomas Anderson on the mind, and I was like looking. At, I, I remember in December I was looking at the list of stuff from him I've watched, and it's like three films that I absolutely adore, and then I haven't seen hardly anything else. Right, and so I've kind of been in my mind like, ah, uh, you know what? I should just go through chronologically and just do all the Paul Thomas Anderson movies. You know, if I do like. One a week, I'll have that done in, like, May, I think. If I do one a month, I'll have it done by the end of the year. Like, he's not made that many movies. Yeah. Um. So, started with Heart 8. Really? Okay. In the moment-to-moment of watching it, this is a similar thing to The Long Goodbye, where in the moment-to-moment of watching it, perfectly serviceable... Mid '90s, post Tarantino. Uh, uh, it's post Tarantino in the sense of like this is getting made because Pulp Fiction was such a hit, but it is actually like still in the midst of like Tarantino as a well, yeah, and more thing. importantly, it, what it actually is is it's a it's a Martin Scorsese movie. Yeah, like from head to toe, the DNA of this is Scorsese, just all the way down, um, and it, much like you know, a couple early Scorsese movies that are figuring shit out. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm thinking of Mean Streets here. Um, does not really have the engine of what makes Scorsese movies work at all. Um, Heart Eight is a character study of um, this one guy named Sidney, who is a like professional gambler. Um, he takes... Uh, he's played by Philip Baker Hall. Um... He takes in um, this down-on-his-luck guy played by John C. Riley, forget the character's name, um, as a sort of surrogate son, trains, trade, trains him in the ways of being a professional gambler, like a guy who makes his living off of gambling. Um, and it's sort of a character study about this Sydney, the, the surrogate father character. And it, like, in the moment-to-moment of watching it, totally fine, Breezy, 90 minutes, went down smooth. In the, like, thinking about it, I'm like, it was really, like, never really got going. I didn't think the character was that interesting. The performance is good, but the character himself is not really bringing it. Um, It felt, like, kind of aimless. Felt kind of like... And then also, like, the, the, the... So... It's a little weird and it's a little weird to just see um Sydney adopt this random ass dude 
that he sees, basically. Like, he just adopts that guy as his son, right? Yeah. And then we flash forward two years later, and Sidney does not like that John C. Riley is hanging out with Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson, like, very much here playing, like, you know, the Tarantino character that he's getting cast for in the mid-90s, you know? Like, like... Anderson is not doing anything to tweak that character. He's just importing that character into this movie. Um, and he's like a bad influence on Sydney's surrogate son. And so it's like, why are we bringing in this like kind of lightly stereotyped black character to be a bad influence? It feels like there's some weird racial stuff yeah. happening here. And then John C. Riley falls in with Gwyneth Paltrow um, who is a sex worker, and Sydney is very disapproving of this, extremely paternalistic. And the movie is kind of like, hey, man, you should stop being such a jerk to her for being a sex worker. But it's still like, it never comes down on, it's bad to be such an asshole about sex work all the time. Like, it is still yeah. like, Gwyneth Paltrow, like, fucks everything up, like, causes the whole dramatic situation for the back half of the movie because she is a sex worker and sex workers create problems, I guess. Um, and it's just like, what are we fucking doing here? Like, I know that you're like two years away from making Boogie Nights. I can't, I don't think that like, <laughs> you're like this negative on the idea of sex work existing. <laughs> so like, what yeah. are we fucking doing here? You know? Um, I really did not like the way that Gwyneth Paltrow character is treated throughout this movie. Um, and I don't like the way the Samuel L. Jackson character is treated throughout this movie. And so when I'm like talking about it, it's like, oh, it was like a little boring. It was a little dry. It didn't quite figure out what it was doing. And then when I think about it, it's like, oh, there's the like bad, bad shit like sitting under this movie that I'm like yeah. not happy with at all. And like, I like I've watched his. I've not seen Boogie Nights. I don't. Maybe Boogie Nights is also like sex work is bad. I've seen other Paul Thomas Anderson movies, and I don't think he has such a like simplistic, moralistic, tisking at sex workers views by you know the 2010s or whatever. Um, but in this movie, it is the most like misogynistic version of like what sex work is. Um, and and so. Yeah, I just I, I, uh, did not did not care for Heart Eight. Looking really looking forward to Boogie Nights next. Um, I don't know. I might do one of these every two weeks. I'm not setting myself a schedule like that, but um, I would like to by the end of 2023, like have seen all of them or at least seen all of them that I haven't seen yet. Maybe I won't rewatch There Will Be Blood because I've seen it a bunch of times. But you know, yeah. Um. So yeah, that's that's Heart Eight. Okay. Oh, uh, I have in here question marks for the stairs. I'm giving it an A minus. So there's a really good steady cam shot of 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 Philip Baker Hall, Sydney, um, walking up some stairs and going into a motel room. Right? Mm. There's a really good steady cam shot. And then when he leaves the motel room, they do the exact same steady cam shot in reverse. And I'm like, you didn't have anything else. You didn't have like another. You you were at an A, and then you just did the same thing again. And I'm like, no, A minus. Stop this. Oh oh, last last thing. There's one scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman, and you're like, 
oh my God, Philip Seymour Hoffman is better than every other person in this movie. I want the Philip Seymour Hoffman movie. What are we doing here? Yeah. Uh, luckily, Paul Thomas Anderson is going to spend the rest of his career realizing we need the Paul, we need the Philip Seymour Hoffman movie. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's the last of it. Um. Well, so finishing up, Emily and I watching. Well, not finishing up us watching heist movies because we're still at least going to watch Fast Five, if not some other stuff. But mm-hmm. um, we finished up the Oceans movies mm-hmm. uh, with Oceans thirteen and Oceans eight. Um, I think on Letterboxd, I gave these both the same rating, but for like slightly different reasons, which is like Oceans thirteen is still fairly stylish. It's not quite at the level as like. Uh, you know, 11 and 12, but it still feels like there's still lots of style going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some use of like CG stuff that I, I don't think is the strongest. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's one where there's like wafting smell, pheromone thing. Some of the like plot stuff is a little bit stupider. I feel like, <laughs> um, but I, the biggest thing with oceans 13 was it was giving me kind of what I want where you have like, a plan and it's being executed and you're seeing all the little like ways that everything falls into place. Um, but I think I felt like there's a little bit less that was like explained at the beginning and that you're just watching a lot of it. And there's so little of like them being on their back foot. And so I think that was part of it is that it like, it was fun watching them like run this scheme to, cause the plot of this one is they're going to, um, there's one of the the members of the team uh, got into doing casino stuff and then got screwed by Al Pacino. Forget what the name of the character is that he plays. His his name is Al Pacino. Yeah, but Al Pacino. <laughs> um, and Al Pacino is then opening up the casino that they were working on together that he's renamed the bank. Oh, I think his last name is like Bank or something. Mm, or Banks or yeah, um, Banksy, Banksy. Um. And so, basically, uh, they develop this plot where they're going to destroy the casino by ensuring that it doesn't make enough money to, uh, like, because if that happens, then it, like, defaults to, like, being a, a public casino or something. Yeah. Um, I forget the exact, like, rules around this. Um, and then... uh a lot of it, so one of it, or like part of it is there's a lot of money that is uh, just the people there that night are just going to win big. And they're going to win big as part of it. But like other people there who are just there and don't know are also winning big. Um, this is also part of the scheme because there's this like super advanced AI security thing that can like tell from, you know, various little like physical tells if someone expected to win or not to tell if someone's cheating because if they expected to win, you know? Uh, so then if you have it so that you have rigged the machines, but for other people winning, those people are just genuinely surprised that they're winning. Right. Uh, and then there's this final part where like they have to get a EMP thing in basically to shut down the supercomputer for like 15 minutes to do a couple things where then they win big. Uh, they like make a fake earthquake and stuff so that it'll get evacuated and then people won't keep, you know, selling back. Um, and so it's fun seeing like all the plans play out, uh-huh. but there's, 
never really a moment where they seem fully thrown on the back foot or any time that the movie begins to make you think that they're on the back foot. It then pretty quickly explains to you how this was all part of the plan. Right. Yeah. Um, And so that was part of why it was, because it was just like, everything seems like executed perfectly in it in a way where I'm like, it'd be a little bit more fun if they like something got a little fucked up and they had to like wing it and stuff. Yeah. Like Ocean's Eleven is great because you get the moments sort of like, oh, Danny Ocean has to roll a twenty on his charisma check, you know? Yeah, or and whatever. So there's like lots of places where I can fail. There are places where it is failing, but then someone else like picks it up. Yeah. Um, and then Ocean's Eight gave a lot more of what I want from a heist movie, which is there's the primary heist. You get the big like twist at the end of how that ended up being more money than they were trying to heist. They did the whole like primary heist. Which they also succeeded at, but as a ruse to make people not notice that they were doing another heist as well. Oh, nice, um, nice, nice. Yeah. Um, but then there's also some people getting on the back foot, them having to, like, in the moment sort of change plans. But then they've sort of accounted for if there's little mistakes here, then, like, we can still find ways to, to smooth it over or whatever. Um, and so it's, like, really fun from that perspective. There's a lot of great actresses in it, um, you know. They did the the 2018 what you can do to do a, a big like let's get George Clooney and Brad Pitt in this movie mm-hmm. with a bunch of other stars. Yeah, you know, um, it, <laughs> this is this is not a slight to the movie necessarily at all. Just a slight to the movie culture that like it's 2018 we're doing another Ocean's movie yes. and they're it's only- very it's very in the like. Uh, well, yeah, it's also very in the, like, we're doing women's school, women Ghostbusters or whatever, too. Uh-huh. It's, like, really in that era of uh, almost this, like, huh, we're going to really test audiences who say that they want to see more, like, women in, in like, key roles in films by making a bunch of films where that is it, but we also don't really support it with the same marketing or budget. Yeah. And instead of getting 11 people, we only get eight. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just going to say that like everything you said is totally on point. I just think it's like a poor reflection on um, the, the movie industry of 2018 that you had to get like, we're, we're getting like all the heavy hitters. We got eight people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of them's Mindy Kaling, who is great, but uh-huh. uh, I feel like there's some people in, in Ocean's Eleven, too, who are, are like, Mindy Kaling's great, but I just don't think of her as, like, a great actress in the way that... Yeah. If you're doing this, like, like, big... Like... Like, I, Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett are, like... Totally. That's your... That is your uh, George Clooney and your Brad Pitt for the I don't movie. know anything about Tar at all. Yeah, but it, I was looking things up about it like a couple days ago, just to be like, people keep talking about this movie, and I don't even know—is it a drama? Is it a biopic? What is it? And I saw Kate Blanchett, and I was like, why is Kate Blanchett in every movie now? Yeah. <laughs> or and then I was like, why is Kate Blanchett in every movie that's like halfway interesting now? It's like there's only one person who gets to be an actor anymore, and it's Kate Blanchett for some reason. Yeah. And you know what? Fair on her. She's she's great. <laughs> um. <laughs> But also, like, I was watching this being like, man, there there are, like, a few big ones that they could have gotten. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, just to, like, get, like, uh, Meryl Streep. Man, why is Meryl Streep not in this movie? Probably because she didn't want to be. 
they they called her. They, they called yeah. They called her first. Yeah, I, <laughs> let's be real. They called Meryl Streep first. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe that she wasn't in the running at some point. That they didn't want her for this movie. Um, they wrote the movie the, for the her. The script you was Ocean's Nine, and they were just like, "Well, we can't find anybody else to be the Meryl Streep character because who the fuck else could be Meryl Streep?" So it's Ocean's Eight now. <laughs> It was actually originally Ocean's Ten. They had another one too. That so I, I wouldn't be surprised. Someone, not us, should do a podcast. I was thinking about like we could do a podcast where we watched every George Clooney movie because I just really like George Clooney. I'm like that would get boring. That would get really boring uh, for us anyway. That's just not a thing that we would enjoy doing. Someone, other people like watching movies that way. Other people like watching movies for the actors. Someone should do a podcast. Where you alternate George Clooney, Meryl Streep, George Clooney, Meryl Streep, and that's just that's just what you do is you just watch every George Clooney and every Meryl Streep movie, <laughs> and, and then you'll know everything there is to know about cinema from like 1985 to now. <laughs> yeah, um, without having to watch a single MCU movie. <laughs> yeah, but like in general, I enjoyed it. The there's some great acting in it. Um, I like a lot of the plot stuff of it. Um, it's just not stylish in the way that the other, like, older ones were. Yeah, it makes sense. And so, like, it doesn't have that same, like, just, like, the way that it's, like, shot and the, you know, editing and stuff. It doesn't quite have that same, like, pizzazz that Soderbergh was able to bring, so. You know what? That ties in really well to my next movie, (laughs) actually. Um, so, similar to Paul Thomas Anderson, um. I don't want to badmouth... Uh, Mindy Kaling. She just felt of the act- actors or actresses I was looking at in the list. She was the most like uh, limited. Like I'm trying. What's the she's word? She's kind I'm of just for? comedic to me. Well, yeah. She she's comedic and also like um, I feel like a lot of the other actresses had like much longer careers. Yeah, I feel like where she Kaling was kind is... of just popular at the time. Yeah, Mindy Kaling to me is truly just The Office, and then I'm like, uh... yeah, and then like she's done some other stuff since, but um... she's got that Velma show that people are discoursing about right now. Yeah, um, I have no opinion about the Velma show. All I know is that uh, people on animation Twitter need to relax. <laughs> yeah, even if even if you're right, I don't know what you're all arguing about. You might be right. Just relax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, similar thing to the Paul Thomas Anderson one, um, except I've seen way more of these movies. I want to do, I would like to watch all the Cohen movies that I, this year that I haven't already seen. And I want to rewatch a handful of them that it's been a long time. I don't really, re- I don't really want to rewatch like Miller's Crossing because it's been a long time and I remember like liking that movie but not really loving it. So I don't really need to revisit that one. But I remember really liking Blood Simple. So I wanted to revisit that and I felt like it would be a good way to start this little mini project. Um, <clears throat> I was whelmed, I guess. My, my, my memory of Blood Simple was that when I first saw it, I was watching a bunch of other Cohen movies. And then I was like, I should go watch their first movie. And I watched it, and I was like, wow, that's so, like, different and, like, not as good as the rest of their movies. But, like, that's so interesting. Like, I could see all the, like, 
ways in which they're going to develop as filmmakers over the next few movies. Yeah. In a way that was really interesting. This time, the only code movie I've watched recently is Macbeth, right? Um, so I don't have that context in my head of how they're going to grow past this movie. I'm just watching this movie like, this is not it. <laughs> I still gave it four stars. Um, I still, there's a lot to like in this movie, especially the back third of it. Yeah. Like you hit a certain point where um, the like tension starts really ratcheting up. Um, and there's a certain point where there's been a lot of like, so, so basically, Frances McDormand, um, in her first film role, I believe, or her first starring role, regardless, Frances McDormand um, is married to this old guy who kind of looks like Richard Nixon, and I've seen him in other movies, but I can't remember his name or what other movies, but he kind of looks like Richard Nixon. Um, anyway, <laughs> she's married to this guy, and he's a real scumbag, and she's like running out on him with one of his employees and he hires a hitman to get her, right? Um uh I, I believe it's John Getz there. Okay. Um no, this is a different guy. Regardless. Yeah. Um uh uh uh, uh and so like the the as it's developing it's like kind of not really there but then you hit a certain point where she doesn't know that her husband's dead the guy that she was running out on her husband with thinks that she killed her husband actually it was the hitman um who killed the husband um but then the other guy hid the body, but then the the hitman who killed the husband doesn't know that this other guy hid the body because he thought he was hiding the body for her. Um, and then she, like, does this other thing. And, like, so there's a lot of really cool stuff with, like, what this character knows this, this character knows this, this character knows this, and they're all making a lot of assumptions, and you, the viewer, are the only person who... Um, who gets to know who gets like the zoomed out view um, and gets to see like how all these things are like playing off each other in like tragic comic ways, you know, that feels the most Cohen-y too. It, 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 I think it is the most Hitchcock-y thing. It is like deliberately, I think playing around with like, Hitchcock stuff, but like that is the element that is going to become Cohen-y later on. Yeah. Um, and so that's a really, really cool part of the movie. That's where it gets really good. Um, but it it doesn't quite work. And the other thing is, it's not funny. There, There is not a single bit of this movie that I laughed at. I didn't smirk. I didn't chuckle. And you really, truly, if you are not, like, laughing at an inappropriate moment during a Coen Brothers movie, what are we fucking doing here? Like, yeah. if you're not, like, laughing at something and you're not sure if it's a joke or not, what are we fucking doing here? <laughs> um, and so that was that was the big thing was that, like, it needs it needs like the the Robert Altman, like irony, you know, it needs the 
Like, oh, we're doing Hitchcock, but we're overdoing it or something, you yeah. know? Um, Because it's kind of just a straightforward thriller and it's not like propulsive enough to be that. And there's not enough like marginal stuff going on in it to, to pull you through. Um, Still gave it four stars. Still mostly had a good time. Did hit a certain point where I like put it at 1.5 speed on Criterion because I was like, all right, let's. Let's wrap this yeah. up. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Um, the 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 last thirty minutes are the best part, and the first hour ish is like, let's speed it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was Dan Hedaya, by the way, is the guy who kind of looks like Nixon. Yeah. You see it too, right? Yeah, especially this one. I really yeah. see it. Yeah. This photo. Yeah. Um, he also kind of. He's got that chin. You know what? He looks like if you mixed Nixon and um, um, Michael Scott's not his actual name. Uh, mm. uh, Steve Carell. Oh, yeah. He's like if you put Steve Carell and Nixon into one person, kind of. Yeah. Um, He's just kind of got like that like uh, permanent Nixon like frown. Yeah. yeah, he really does. Yeah. And it's like similar like kind of balding. He's such a scumbag in this movie. Yeah. Um. So yeah, Nixon's that's... such a scumbag, huh? Nixon's such a Nixon's scumbag. such a scumbag. <laughs> um, um. Don't remember. Don't remember any stairs. I was stone sober for that too. I just don't remember. Yeah. If there were stairs. Oh, uh, Ocean's Thirteen. I think was a B. I'm pretty sure there were some nice stairs, but I don't remember any stairwell scenes. But like, it's in a big fancy casino, and I know there's a part where they go upstairs, mm-hmm. where some one of the, um. Matt Damon, I think, his character, has to uh, trick, like, this woman into helping him steal the jewels, basically. And then the way that they get them out is that uh, his dad, posing as an FBI agent, comes to arrest him. Anyway. Um, And I know there's stairs involved there, but I don't really remember exactly what they look like or any of that stuff. Um, And then I'm sure that there's... Oh! There's a big them going down the stairs as they leave after they've successfully done the highest and everyone's mm. smirking. Is this is this Ocean's Thirteen? Uh, Ocean's Eight. Okay, that's an A. Okay, I could maybe push it up, but like, if it took you this long to remember, they're not I... facing their consequences in that moment. They're not going to face their con. Yeah. 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 They just stole a bunch of money and they're just happy about it. Yeah, I would be too if I stole a bunch of money. Um. Anyway, uh, so another movie I watched was The Banshees of Inisharan, um, which Inisharan's a made up name uh, for. So it's supposed to be like a country that's like, or an uh, uh, island that's like the west of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Inish is like kind of island stuff. Okay. Like a bunch of islands are like Inish something. Uh, so there's like Inishir and stuff. Um, and then Aaron is like, you know, Aaron Gobra. Like mm-hmm. that's the. Ireland, so the, it's the. They're even kind me, of saying the island of Ireland. Even me, person who does not know anything, knew that Aaron is uh, yeah Ireland. Um, which is going to tie into some of the other stuff about this. Which is in the watching this movie, I was just having a blast. Uh, it's a uh you know dark comedy about um there's these two Irish guys um there's Podrick and there's Colm um Colm Meany Colm. Uh, is a folk musician uh, and he just decides one day that he doesn't want to be friends with Podrick anymore. 
and <laughs> dumb premise. And, dumb good. Well, yeah, and and uh, most of the perspective through this is Podrick, where he's like. I don't get it. Why doesn't he want to be with friends with me? And then he's like talking to Colm about it. And Colm's like, we sit here and we like chat. We, we do meaningless chat like every day at the pub. You talk to me about stuff like a thing that you found in your donkey shit for two hours the other day. And I am like a musician and I want to do something great with my life. Uh-huh. And I've just decided that you are like boring, that you don't add anything to my life. I don't want to be friends with you anymore. Um, everybody else is like, sorry, I bumped the thing. People may have heard that. Everybody else is like, he doesn't want to be friends with you anymore. What is he like in middle school or something? Like yeah. everybody else is kind of commenting on how ridiculous they are, but they are just being ridiculous, getting into this escalating feud around Colm just deciding he doesn't want to be friends with Podrick anymore. Um, and it escalates in this way too, where he's like, I really want you to stop coming by and trying to talk to me and trying to do things. Like, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. <laughs> and so if you keep doing it, I'm going to start cutting off my fingers. And then he does. He does start cutting off his own fingers and throwing them in Patrick's house. <laughs> so all of this stuff is funny. It's a it's a very like uh, dark comedy in a way that I was just super at the very beginning where he's like, I went by Combs and he I said hi and he didn't say anything to me. And his uh, sister, Patrick's sister, is like, Are you Rowan? And he's like, I don't think we're Rowan. We might be Rowan. Are we Rowan? <laughs> and it's just like a lot of stuff like that. It's just funny to watch. It's entertaining to watch. This sounds this sounds pretty funny. I had a I had a blast watching it. Except for any moment where so throughout it, they continually want to remind you that this is set at the end of the Irish Civil War. The Irish Civil War, uh, being a war that followed the war for Irish independence where at a certain point a treaty is reached where where Ireland is distinct from uh the UK it is not part of the UK but it mm. is still part of the British empire um northern ireland i think i forget if it's part of this treaty or later some of this stuff i don't know the exact details of um so if people are like more familiar with this stuff i i will cede the ground to them but like you know northern ireland remains part of the UK uh, the rest, Ireland, you know, becomes a separate thing. It is its own nation, but it is still part of the British Empire. Um, this treaty is reached. And there is a segment of the uh, IRA, the Irish Republic Army, that does not agree with the treaty and breaks off. And it is often referred to as the anti-treaty IRA. And is the foundation for, like, this basically exists up until, like, 1969, I think, when it, it splits into, like, the, the um, I forget what it's called, like, the official IRA or whatever. There's, mm -hmm. like, the, there's, like, the IRA and then there's the provisional IRA and this other split happens and there's more, you know. There, there's been a long history of like revolutionary action happening in Ireland. Um, and a big, like key pivotal moment is this treaty being reached in this creation of like basically the antecedent of like the modern two IRA, like split IRA that exists in Ireland. Uh, and so they are repeatedly, re repeatedly reminding you that this is during the Irish civil war. 
Um, it's constantly being talked about how that, how that war is happening on the mainland. And then the Irish civil war is over. The sister goes there to the mainland and they refer to it repeatedly as the mainland. And again, the name of the Ireland or the Island that they're on is Inish Aaron, Ireland of Ireland or the Island of Ireland. Right. Um, and then it's like, Oh, you should just come to the mainland. It'll be better here. But he is like now committed to just like feuding for the rest of his life their lives whoever dies first right uh and it does escalate in ways where like true aggression is happening he's throwing his fingers at the guy's house stuff escalates beyond that yeah um and so this whole thing that's like a a funny uh dark comedy about just two guys who decide not you know, one guy decides not to be friends with the other guy. And then it escalates to a point in which the other guy is also like, well, fuck you two, uh-huh. you know? Uh, and then they're just like fully feuding. Um, so anyway, it wants to continually remind you that this is about Ireland, that this is about like the fighting that has been happening, the conflicts that have been happening in Ireland. And this is the part where I just become mad about what this movie is uh-huh. because this movie is talk is, is situating like the conflict in Ireland, not in a thing that is like in any way grounded in British oppression of Ireland. Yeah. Of like how violence arises out of like revolutionary action against an oppressive force that is its own form of violence. Mm-hmm. The oppressive force of, Britain is never talked about here as a violence yeah. or as a thing that is affecting these people's lives directly. And the the closest like possible metaphor I can get is when they're like, you should just go to the mainland because this director grew up in fucking London. So of course this is his whole perspective on all of this shit mm-hmm. is he has like the most like middling centrist. Oh, just the two sides of Ireland should get along. The people who want to be a part of the yeah. UK and the people who don't. And why are we doing this fighting? Um, because you're colonizing. <laughs> yeah, and it's just it has no framework for that and so it becomes this like absolutely middling thing about how just the conflict in Ireland is meaningless and people should just they should just get over themselves and stop fighting because they're hurting themselves by cutting off the, and once all of it becomes I have to read this as a metaphor for Ireland, I hate this movie. <laughs> if I if I just think about it as two Irish guys who just is, like you know, end up rowing it's great. It's a funny movie. <laughs> but whenever the politics that it wants to continually remind you are, it's trying to say a political thing. I hate this movie. So, and it, it, I think it's just bad. I think it's just a bad, politically bankrupt movie. But it's very funny. Yeah. And the acting's good. So. Shrug. People can watch it and just go into it being aware that it's, you know it's a it's political message is horrible and i i hate yeah. this movie for yeah. that yeah but i think i still gave it like a three and a half or a four or something because it's fun to watch it's funny when the the guys are fighting and the guy's cutting off his fingers and throwing them at the <laughs> door because <laughs> he talked to him and then there's the part where he's like i finally think i made a breakthrough and he, he did not make a breakthrough he cuts off more fingers. <laughs> bow yeah bow break bow break Oh, uh, F, I think it's, it's like a remote island in Ireland. Um, I don't think there are stairs in these homes. Uh, 
There's so much la landscape beautiful in this movie.
tell me about Just Like Home. Just Like Home is a novel by Sarah Gailey. We don't usually... A, a novel? <laughs> I know. It's pretty new for this podcast. Get it? Because novel also means new. Novel, not new. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah, Um. <clears throat> I read books. <laughs> I took I I accidentally took a pause there just by accident as I was forming the rest of the <laughs> sentence and then it became a really funny pause. <laughs> yeah, very just I read books. <laughs> Damn, good for you. I read books. I don't always talk about them on the show. Do you want me to like pat you on the back? Like... <laughs> yeah, I do actually. Thank you. Thank you. Good job reading books. Everybody clap for me. I read books. <laughs> Um, I read books, and I don't often talk about them on the podcast, but I wanted to um, specifically shout out this book in particular. One, it just really grabbed me. I was really blown away by this book, and just like quality-wise, which is part of why I wanted to talk about it. And the other reason is that I think that if you like the film Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, you're probably going to like Just Like Home. And I, like... <clears throat> If you're listening to this podcast and you've seen Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, like I recognize that like I'm 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 writing a check. Like I'm writing a pretty big check there by saying like putting just like home in conversation with Fire Walk with me. I, there is like a sanctity that I feel around that movie that like <clears throat> I feel fine like putting this book into conversation with it. If you like Stephen King books, I think you should um or if you if you find some things enjoyable about Stephen King books, but often like have a very frictive experience with how he's uh, the most conservative person in the 1980s, <laughs> um, I really like to recommend Just Like Home. I think this book is phenomenal. Um, just to like, I have not told you the premise of the book no. in any way. Um, uh, the the main character, her name is um, Vera Crowder. Her father was a serial killer. Um, a like, and, um, he is convicted when she is a teenager. Um, and like her family, her whole situation becomes a like sensation in the like, you know, 2010s, 2020s, like true crime, like, like she'll move to a new town and when people find out who she is she'll start getting hounded by local podcasters and have to move to a new town and shit like that you yeah. know um uh her her mother still lives in the house that they've always lived in and rents out the house um to like writers and artists who want to make work about this very famous serial killer right this is 15 years after her father goes to jail um, and her mother calls her home because her mother is, like, going to die any minute now, basically. <clears throat> um, and so it is, like, <clears throat> this really, like, gut-wrenching exploration of, like, uh reconciling with an abusive parent her mother like totally in the in, not totally 
somewhat independent of her father's crimes, her mother is like an abusive is an abusive person in her life. Like even if you know alternate universe where her father did not do the things that he did, still an abusive mother. You know. Yeah. Um. And um, like you're reconciling with like. I kind of want you gone, but watching you go is really painful. And then it's also does like the it thing where it's like intercutting the present day, her dealing with her mother's death with flashbacks to um, like her teenage years and her um, like her time with her father, her relationship with her father, her relationship with her mother back then. Um, It's really phenomenal. Like it's it's really like. It's taking on a lot of stuff (laughs) there. It's taking on a lot of really heavy subject matter in what it's doing. And I think it just does all those things really, really, really well. Um, I cannot, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, uh, um, And I'm, I have other stuff to say kind of, but it's. I think KB would really like this book. The thing that I want to tell KB about this book is the ending. <laughs> and so I might tell you off mic yeah. um, the ending of the book. <laughs> but I won't I won't tell people here because I, re- I think people should just read it and and see what it is for themselves. I, I really deeply love this book. Also, it's a haunted house book. Also, it's like she's living in the house where the murders happened. It's haunted. Yeah. Or is it? I don't know. It might not be haunted. It might just all be in her head. Who knows? You read I mean, it's at least emotionally haunted. Yes, yes. It is haunted by, <laughs> like, <laughs> it is haunted by these people were killed here. And even if there's not a ghost, you do just have to think about the people that died here. <laughs> yeah. Um, Haunted in the way that the Palmer house is haunted. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which, in the return, could also be haunted. Yeah. <laughs> like by a ghost? No, 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 no. Like when I say when I say that this is like, you know, in conversation with Fire Walk with me, I do mean that like there's a lot, a lot of similarities between the mother in this book and Sarah Palmer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um Um Oh, last but not least, I gave it an S for stairs. The dad kills people in the basement and there's a bunch of scenes going down the stairs to the basement where he killed the people. Yeah. S for stairs. I'm not. I'm not going to tell you anymore. <laughs> it's like maybe a spoiler to say that the dad's a serial killer, but I don't know how I would. I don't know what I would tell people about the book if yeah. I was not going to start with the daughter of the serial killer. You know. Yeah. So. Um, um. I yeah. I I just I think if the if you like the stuff that we talk about on this podcast, there's a lot uh, in this book for you. So. Yeah. That's it. I'm not going to recommend every... I read Brandon Sanderson books last week. I'm not going to recommend those on the podcast. This is not a new segment. This is just a, a applicable to this show thing. So. Yeah. People should read Nyal Saga. <laughs> that is not in any way applicable to this show. But people should read Laxdyla Saga because there's combos in it. Or is there... There's, no, Nyal Saga no. has the combos at the beginning. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It is because we've read a couple now, and I'm like having to think about it more directly as a podcast. 
Uh, it is remar- remarkable about how much you get to Nyal Saga, and it's just like, oh, someone thought about how to structure this <laughs> in a way that people hadn't really. People were like structuring it like purely chronologically or something, right? And now it's like, I'm gonna, int- I'm gonna like conclude something. And then mm. I'm going to introduce the two new characters to you. And then I'm going to like be like, now let's pick back up where we were. But now you know these two other guys who are going to come in right. and stuff. I'm going to give you the lineage and specifically tell you who the fuck you need to care about in this. <laughs> there's even a part where it's like, and then there's like, uh, these kids, I'm not even going to name them. I'm just going to tell you that they're all going to be important. They have kids and they're going to be important. So just know that their kids are going to be important. I'm not going to give you their names yet. Just know it. <laughs> um, whereas other ones will list off their like eight fucking kids and you don't know who's going to matter. Anyway. Um, oh, can I say, can I say one quick thing? One last thing about just like home. Okay. People go listen to around the long fire. People go listen to around the long fire on um, abnormal mapping, abnormal mapping.com. Um, I was reading Goodreads reviews, and someone said this book is slow. Oh, there's a bit where they go in the closet, and they list all the things that are in the closet. Motherfucker, it's important. Yeah. It turns out that when you have skeletons in the closet, you gotta list what's in the closet. <laughs> you stupid motherfuckers. <laughs> I read Goodreads reviews and got mad. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. I read Letterbox reviews and got mad. Just don't. Just don't. Or just go and know it's going to be stupid. I knew it was going to be stupid. But, but you they... got to be like, you got to be like fully ready for how stupid it's going to be. I, I just was not prepared for, oh, why do they describe things? They describe the objects because they have memories and it's a book about. <sighs> it's okay. I, I once <laughs> intentionally looked into a forum where people were talking about uh, volume 21 of Nana because I wanted to see what reactions were in the moment and the number of people who are like, it's boring. They're not moving the plot forward. And I'm like, you and I are just in this for completely (laughs) different things. If you think one of the most like, uh, you know, huge events in like a bunch of these people's lives just happened. You don't need to slow down the story for like a, a volume to like focus on how people are emotionally processing what happened to them. Right. Yeah. Fuck up. This whole thing has been about like people's relationships and emotions, and you're getting all of it like climaxing here. What the fuck are you on about? Anyway, people um, on the internet are dumb. Some more Nana. Pe- people on the internet so is not as, are not as smart as me, and that's the real problem. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the only one with the correct takes. <laughs> Speaking of being, and only- usually am, except for when they disagree with me. Speaking of being the only people on the internet with the correct takes, would you like to talk about Mobile Suit Gundam Shars Counterattack? Sure. So, again, watch this because, uh, one, about to start Iron-Blooded Orphans on um, Ghost Divers. So people who want to listen to uh, a podcast where people are deep diving into Iron-Blooded Orphans and can't wait for GGP to get there, good news. Mm -hmm. Go listen to Ghost Divers. Um, but part of it, I wanted to try and get through like this, like, you know, I feel like this gets talked about as like the main chunk of universal century stuff, yeah. right? The, the other stuff that's going to happen is like, you get the OVAs, you get like jumping forward into yeah. like victory is like displaced time-wise and th- you know. Right. Totally. Um, but this is the, like, 
The first this is like the series, heart of like what Gundam is yes. that then is getting iterated on. And there's there's so as much as the internet like as so as much as like Gundam fandom is constantly relitigating like the ending of Char's counterattack, um like Gundam itself is constantly relitigating it. Like the first episode of Gundam X is about Shars counterattack, you know? And yeah. I I only saw like the first 3 episodes. I meant to keep up with it and didn't like but like I mean, Turnay is kind of about Shars counterattack. Turnay is kind of about Shars counterattack. Yeah. We're both only 18 episodes in. Please do not say shit. Now that you're done with CCA, I think we're probably going to yeah. get back to Turnay soon. We we talked about cuz for people who are wondering, we are going to watch Smooth Talk. It'll be uh, next week, we're going to see that movie in the theater. Uh-huh. We're, we're going to go see Sunset Boulevard, so we're not moving that. Uh, but then you're suggesting, because we'll have some time where we can maybe watch another movie. Mm-hmm. We maybe do like a double feature. But I think I would rather just like, we wanted to watch the first episode of season two of Twin oh, Peaks. We could totally, do that totally. and then maybe watch some turn A or something. Yeah, totally. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's probably be the plan. And then the week after I would think I would rather do that than try and get in smooth talk to like cram in more podcast work in that sense. So anyway, gun to your head is Char right in this movie or not? So do you want to know the new type flash that I had about Char's counterattack? You're failing the gun to your head thing, but go ahead. Char is correct, Mm -hmm. but he's also a Takami. (laughs) (laughs) You're... Jo texted me earlier today someone, that someone in Just Like Home is a talk of me, and I was like, fuck off. <laughs> but, like, he... Uh, this is the thing that they talk about on GGP, so I don't know how much I want to get into it, but uh, I, I guess my, like, read, especially thinking about the end of Double Zeta, I'll just, like, put this out on the table. He is correct. What he wants to do is correct. He does have this idea in him, which I think is, like, the the more I think about it, there is an impulse in, like, setting up, like, I want the rival of Amaro, which is this understanding that, like, he is going to be doing this essentially terrorist act, but that is a revolutionary act. And if there is not, like, support from other people, Mm -hmm. then this won't lead to anything. That, like, what he's doing won't lead to anything. Yeah. Um, And so once you set up Amaro as his foil... To then, like, test fully, like, can can I still pull this off? Can I still do this? Can I have the kind of support? But he is a Takumi in that he fully instrumentalizes the people in his yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, I think he, he lacks, like, the kind of compassion to, like, fully see, like, that Quest needs, like, a father figure and support, mm-hmm. you know? Um... Like, he, he lacks all of these things to, like, be able to... And I think this is also why he's attacking me, which is that I think uh, some of the stuff with Nanai is interesting. But I think some of it, too, is that, like, I'm watching it, and, like, Nanai is almost the Hachi here. Of the, like, the woman who has fallen into this relationship with him that's, like, kind of a political relationship for him to have, but he has now been able to, like, find trust in her mm. in some ways. And support there. And that relationship becomes, like, weirder and more complex because they are, like, together in this way where just sometimes he has to lean on her. Mm. And that has, like, given that relationship something different than when he approaches Quest. And I think 
because of the stuff with Lala, he has this entire like way that he relates to people that is around what happened there. Mm-hmm. And so he has turned like, I'm going I'm to make another comparison. Lala in this is Reira. Lala is the person who's being like elevated to be like this like angelic figure and everything mm-hmm. who, who, and I think is the way that he treats other, there's the whole thing of like Ishara pedophile. And I think he treats like a lot of women, these other women as like, um, I don't, I don't think he like treats them sexually in that way because of the way that he's thinking about Lala. Yeah. Like, it's not like a, a sex thing, but he is like willing to, um, instrumentalize the like desire that women have, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that is then still abusive, I think. You know, I had a random thought the other day and this is, but a- so then here's how all this ties in though, which is that, um, Double Zeta, Judo has not read theory. Yeah. But Judo is uh, putting things into practice, is a community organizer, is someone who I, I would put my faith in to get shit done. If Judo could have met Char or honestly could have met Quest. Mm-hmm. If if Judo and Quest hung out, and Quest <laughs> already knew all that, and Judo knows how to do fucking community organizing and is not going to instrumentalize her in uh-huh. the way that Shar could, yeah. then we have a real revolution on our hands. Um, but but Shar is not able to do, to build the community support, is not able to do that organizing, where it becomes a thing where it is him trying to do this one act mm-hmm. and he thinks if i do this act then like someone else can come in and fill the role of of doing the community organizing after the fact to build what the rest of this revolution looks like after i do this but this is the thing that i want to do his failing is that you need to have the the community even if you're not the one with the plan but he thinks that he has to have the plan for everything or i have to do the thing and then let people figure it out afterwards and no you need to be able to organize people and bring them on so that other people are making the plan while you are doing this yeah and other people are bought in in a way that is beyond you just instrumentalizing them uh-huh. in a way where they can then like break through from that in a different way yeah the 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 tragedy of char in that movie is the i I think Shars Counterattack is a really beautiful movie. Um, this is also where I kind of came around. It's still stupid to me when they're like the the when the, the Zaku, ghost parade yeah. is put, when the Zaku's come and they just decide that they're gonna yeah. they've been working this entire time to throw this and then they're gonna go that part stupid and then the ghost parade uh, by fully like decontextualizing it from all the people involved and doing it as just like this live stream f- thing. Yeah. Uh, also that makes it seem as if the will of all people is to push it away. And I think the more interesting thing is he has not reached enough consensus Mm -hmm. among people who would support this action so that too many people will reject it. And then even if it fell, it still wouldn't like fully achieve his goals because there's not enough people there to support it. But the, it's it's like abstracted everything. And it's also done like, Oh, the big moment of here, all the, the, the Zaku's come and, are trying to push it to and everything um, that then just makes it seem like everyone's against him. And I think it would be more interesting if you had more than just like quests as mm-hmm. like somebody who seems to like understand what he, what his ideology is. Um, even if I think he's also instrumentalizing her in, in ways that are not that dissimilar from Glemmy other than I think Glemmy is far creepier about it. There's a metaphor that both Tomino and Char lean on a lot 
and I'm like, you know, kind of mixing the real person and the fictional person on purpose here. There's a metaphor that the two of them lean on a lot of souls being laid down by Earth's gravity. Yeah. And generally how this means is, um, like, <clears throat> I think the broadest sense you could say it is, like, space noids, um, uh, colonized, oppressed people who identify with Earth and thereby with the Earth Federation and, like, identify with their oppressors and if they could only shake off the chains of ideology, um, the, the the ideology that they've born, been born and bred into, if only they could shake that off, if only their souls weren't weighed down by Earth's gravity, then we could do so much. <clears throat> um, and the 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 tragedy of, of Char in that movie is the same in the micro and in the macro, which is that he's the one person who's able to see like like every character in that movie and every character in all of Gundam is sinning in ideology in different ways you know but like <clears throat> they're all products of their environments um and they're all products of their upbringings and Shar is the one person who's able to understand that about the world and decide we got to do something about this it we can't we can't change that people are products of the world that they live in so we have to change the world that we live in we have to blow up earth you know yeah. or he doesn't want to blow up earth he wants to put it into a nice age um <clears throat> but the thing that he can't do is he can see it about everybody else but not himself he can't see that his own soul is weighed down by his his past with lala by his um, own upbringing as a royal and as a as a monarch, um, and by like, and because he sees all these people as like um, ideological entities, he can't see any of them as people, and so they are yeah. all tools for him to use. And then you know, in the end, even Amaro, like the person he loves and hates most in equal measure, is a tool for him to use. And he doesn't understand that Amaro is also a person who, like, acts in the world and could fuck up his plans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, and I, I, I just think that's beautiful. I, th I think, like, and, and, and that all, all of that is right there in the moment where he says, time to go, Axis, and take all your dreadful memories with you. You know, yeah. like I, th I think the entire movie is in that one line, and I think that's really beautiful. Um, and then I also was feeling a lot of friction in just the watching of the movie this time, because it feels like there's. <laughs> I've not watched a ton of Double Zeta with you, but I've watched some, and I've watched a bunch of Terrain recently. And those feel like shows, and, and 0079 feels like a show where the sort of visual storytelling and the, like, dialogue are, like, walking hand in hand a lot of the time. Yeah. And this felt like... Well, the, I'm the I'm the only people on the face the only person on the face of the planet who likes the Tiger Bomb episodes, specifically because of the way that it is harkening to the way that judo has been a young jackie chan martial arts movie <laughs> motherfucker this entire time where he runs up like literal 
stairs to the the temple to face the big bad Haman. That's just like this would be the the shot for the final confrontation that would happen in a martial arts movie. They're just so intentionally doing it. There's there's some bad stuff in there. For me, it's not the the uh, cross dressing stuff. I love when they put the butch in the in a dress. It's, it's my favorite <laughs> trope. It's my favorite problematic trope. But um, but yeah, that's an example of like. There's visual storytelling there in the way that it is pulling from tropes from like other movies mm. to then compare it to the this I forget if I've what podcast I've said this on, but I or if I've just tweeted it unlocked, but like I think judo in many ways is in dialogue with like the the martial arts fool who uh at the end knows perfect tai chi. Uh-huh. Um because at the end he knows uh the perfect tai chi of being a new type. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also reaches the part where he knows perfect Tai Chi with like eight episodes left to go. Yeah. And then still has to go out and like do shit. Yeah. Uh, also I refuse to believe that, uh, Plo 2 is dead because nothing that's has proved that not... they are, or that she is. I, I just, I didn't realize that that's how I was supposed to read that until I listened to GGP. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. the weirdest part is that I just, I, if, I feel like. I mean, that, like, last episode has to be crammed uh-huh. with stuff. But I feel like they'd be, like, kind of sad or being, like... Yeah. Like, you notice that she's not there, but also she's... I would presume she's just in a hospital or yeah. something. Yeah. To, to be... Just want to be clear because of how I phrase that. I'm not putting that on GGP. I'm just saying that if I watched Double Zeta in a vacuum and wasn't talking about it to anybody, I would just be like, oh, Plateau is alive. Yeah. I just would never have entered my mind. This is the moment I'm... where she's like falling and it like is it, kind of slow mo. Uh-huh. And I was like, is she really going to die here? Or are they trying to do a fake out and then she's going to be back? And then it just like nothing happened. Like nothing gets confirmed either way. Mm-hmm. That was just weird. Um. Anyway, to get to, to circle back, um, the, the sort of friction I was having with, Shard's counterattack this time is feeling like there's the visual st- storytelling, which is not necessarily wow, cool robot, but like we are given like a budget and a scope to do a bunch of stuff with space battles that we've never really been able to do before. Let's do that. Let's let's go for it. Yeah. And then there is like in the dialogue scenes other stuff happening and the two don't i i i wish that like i i i felt like it was there's all this so there there's all this stuff in this movie that i really deeply deeply care about but i've now watched this movie a bunch of times and spent too fucking long talking about it on various different internet platforms over the years to where now I'm like watching the movie and I'm like, just kind of, I'm just seeing it as a movie, not as this ideological battleground, but just as a movie. And I was like, I wish the talkie scenes were a little more dynamic. And I wish the, the action scenes had a little more talkie, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. When we were like, I was either while we were watching it or at the end, where I was talking about too that like part of me wants this to be like a thirteen episode OVA, yeah, or something, or like a six episode OVA where they're like forty five minutes or like a half hour might be pushing it because it's only three hours. It's only giving them an extra hour. I think. I think, but like 
and part of it is like one I just want to to be able to have like the arc of like stuff going on with Quest where you mm-hmm. like get to know her more and things. Some of it is like I want these characters to have more space to breathe and be developed and and talk with each other and like see how those relationships are rather than having to be super condensed here. Um some of it is that you could have episodes that would focus a little bit more uh like with a, with a little bit more clarity on like specific thematic things that are happening in this movie and you could sort of draw it out and have oh here's the episode that's really looking into the relationships that Amaro and Shar have with Lala this like sort of out of the picture dead figure i think um, even stuff as a... like but and i think also some of it is that i just think that tomino's writing is more geared towards tv totally. even if that sometimes means that uh as this movie does but it's within a movie so it's not nearly as uh, egregious but sometimes something might happen in episode one and then it doesn't come back again until episode nine without any real explanation of yeah. this is a thing that we talked about in episode one yeah i still think that it just lends itself better to tv writing than a movie than this like this. i i think even if this is a six episode ova i think it would be better because i not i think it would be better I think it had the it would have the potential to be better because you would have a beginning and middle and end every twenty minutes, and that yeah. was that or was like a, thirty. Like I'm giving them thirty minutes for this. They can they yeah. can they can do the slightly longer OVA length. But like, like part of the the movie just feels like it keeps going, 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 going constantly, and never yeah. there's pauses. There's there's moments of quiet and reflection, but those moments of quiet and reflection are still dense in the way that like Tomino can never stop being on his bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Um Tomino is just always packing every every moment of everything with stuff. Yeah. You know? Uh-huh. Yeah, so I feel like I at the end, like where I am now compared to right when I finished watching it, I feel like I have a, a little bit better read that I uh even though there's some stuff in the very ending that I think is like dumb, I have a, a read that sits a little bit better with me than when I first watched it. And I was just like, come on, just drop the fucking, but also in the end, I'm also like, but what would be more interesting for you continuing? This makes sense. If this is the, the finality of universal century and there's no more universal century that I think like some of the stuff that I, I have come to think about with the ending and how it's relating to like Shar and his inability to like build an actual like coalition and you know hmm. organize a people who are supporting this in like a uh, ideological way and not just like this sort of military way that he's developed. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like actually like connecting with and and pulling these people together in like a, a more meaningful way where people are bought in, uh, not just like quests but like a larger number. We see lots of people like that. You know, that'd be something that would lead to the revolution. And so this is the end and it's like, okay, that's kind of, uh, it's still like kind of disappointing as the ending, but at least it is pointing towards like why this failed. But now you can maybe imagine why someone else would succeed. But if you're going to make more stuff after this, then I would rather that they just drop the damn comment the damn asteroid or whatever they just dropped axis on earth yeah and then they then have to deal with this act happened 
most people are reading it as this terrorist act. How do we then, how does like other, how do other people fill that gap, try to do something, even if that doesn't succeed because of Shar's failures in this movie or whatever? Um, you know, maybe not all of it drops. Maybe it, it splits into you and half of it drops and it, you know, it's not the, the seed episode five or whatever, where uh, it splits into two, but then they both still hit the earth at the same time, <laughs> which I think has the same kinetic impact as if the whole thing just, I don't understand the point of splitting. <laughs> See, this is so stupid. I have to watch four episodes of it because I'm behind now. And oh my God. I'm doing a stretch. Sorry. Um, You're doing your little, I don't have to watch this stretch. I've committed myself. <laughs> uh, I saw Jackson saying yesterday um, that they've lost all ability to discern good and bad because <laughs> Seed is just like fucked up all their all their internal ability to like form opinion. And I was like, I'm so glad I'm not watching Seed. <laughs> you want to talk about Skinnamarink? Are there stairs in this movie? I don't... I don't recall mm, stairs. I feel like there's not a lot of stairs in space. No. You don't need stairs in space. Is there an F with a question mark? Um, Much like you don't need legs, we don't need stairs. Um, Yeah. So let's talk about Skinnamarink. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll do longer plugs at the very end, but maybe just say quick yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Because this is like a new movie. We rarely do like new movies like this on the podcast. I think this is the only time we've done a new movie. Yeah. I guess we did I the Carry You. The closest was like, yeah, there's I Carry You With Me, but that was also not that new. It was just finally in theaters because of COVID. Yeah. Um, Emma was like kind of new, but not that new. Yeah. We were like a year behind on Emma, I think. Yeah. This is like really the first time where uh, we are doing an episode about like a, a hot movie that people are talking about, but that's in theaters. Yes. I was thinking about going to see it in theaters sometime this week. And then I was like, if I go see Skin and Marink before you and I have a chance to go see Sunset Boulevard, you'll get jealous. And I don't want to like <laughs> do that to you for no reason. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Skin and Marink, uh, directed by... Well, so people can follow me at Fox Omnia. Oh, right, duh, stupid. On uh, Twitter and co-host. we were just talking I about. have my little pin post there. Um, you can see all my other podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Autumnal underscore coffee. You can follow me on co-host at Autumnal on um, co-host. I've been doing posts each week where I gather up all the shows that we do. So if you want to check out links to any of the things that we've got going on, co-host is a great place to uh do that yeah. um also exportodd.io is the patreon give us your money please yeah five dollars i'm not saying please give us your fucking money do it put it in the bag do it unmarked have bills. you seen how many fucking podcasts we do we're uh, worth it we do too many podcasts all right skinnamarink <clears throat> yeah bye everyone who doesn't want to hear new movie talk go watch skinnamarink but Bottom line, I, I really, really, There are really, ways to watch Skinnamarink, even if you aren't going to a theater. I really, 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 really love this movie. I think you don't feel quite as strongly, but I think no, you I really, really liked like, it. I really love this movie. I just had a different emotional reaction than basically all of my friends. Yeah. But I understand um, why. So, so if you don't want to listen to spoilers, we're going to get into spoilers now, but we recommend you go watch the movie and come back. Yeah. Um, 
we probably wouldn't be doing a whole episode about it if we didn't like it. Yeah. If we had just felt mid about it, we probably would have just done the Shars counterattack. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. But uh, I think both of us like this movie more than CCA, so. Mm, I like this movie more than CCA. Now, more than Double Zeta? No. I would go back and rewatch that whole fucking thing right now. I'm not, not a bad I'm, episode of Double Zeta. Not a single bad episode. I'm not engaging this. Uh, <laughs> I can't. I this. I cannot. I cannot. <laughs> it's all necessary. Moon Moon ends up coming back. Yeah, but the stuff before is also necessary for the aforementioned young Jackie Chan martial arts shit. Anyway, Skin of a Rink, 2022 film. It's a horror film. Um, uh, uh. Directed by Kyle Edward Ball. This is his debut feature. Um, this movie is cheap in the way that horror movies are cheap sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> in the way that, like, Saw is a movie that costs, like, $30,000 or something like that. In the way that I think the closest analog here is, like, Blair Witch. This is, uh, like, a new generation's Blair Witch. I mean, the other, the other thing is that this is paranormal activity. Yeah. Like, this is paranormal activity in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there's, especially Blair Witch has some of the comparisons of, like, um, there's an early leak that then created weird mixed reactions that actually built, like, desire in oh, people to yeah. see it. Yeah, I didn't um, think about that, yeah. It being, this is not found footage, but it has that sort of similar vibe of they're doing some, like, new way of sort of doing strange angles on the action and what they're showing and what they're emitting to create the horror. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, like, a... In terms of, like... I I think for a lot of people in, like, my generation where Blair Witch was this sort of horror movie thing, uh, this, like, in to horror movies, this, like, new kind of approach that felt fresh... I, I bet there's a lot of young kids who are watching Skin and Rink because oh, of everything, totally. and then this is like their big, totally pivotal moment. In totally, the same um, I I I, <clears throat> I hope so. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, the plot's very basic. Okay, so yeah, like let's full let's spoilers get, here because I don't know how to talk about it without talking about what the fucking movie is. Yeah. Okay. So like. Because form and plot sort of, like, walk hand in hand, and so, like, I'm just going to expand on something you were just saying. Blair Witch, Saw, Texas Chainsaw, you know, every every generation-ish, like, every somewhere between five to ten years, it feels like a cheap budget horror movie comes out and, like, just really grabs audiences by the throat and is, like an outsized success. And a lot of that ha often has to do with like formal uniqueness, newness, innovation. Yes. And often um, that, that coming about from like limited means. Yes. Yes. Um, and that this often is most successful, I think in horror because horror is a genre one where budgets are often expected to be lower, mm -hmm. but two where, Often not showing the thing can be scarier than doing all the special effects to show the thing. Right. So what is the form then of Skinnamarink that this is the form and the plot are sort of the same thing. Um, Skinnamarink is a series. I think this is shot on actual film or if it's not, the 
the processing to make it look like it's actual film is remarkable, I think. Yeah. There's heavy um, grain the entire time. You and you are it, it's all set in this house. There's definitely digital processing that happens when things like yes. vanish. Yes. There's definitely digital processing that happens. I just don't yes. think the film grain is digital. Yeah, I don't know. Um <clears throat> so the 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 whole film is set in this house. It is a like suburban um Canadian house seemingly. Um, I, I believe I, I heard this from somebody who didn't like read it, but that it was shot in uh, the filmmaker's childhood home. I would not be surprised by that. Yes. Um, yeah. And Ball's childhood home in Edmonton, uh, Canada. Kaylee and Kevin. It was shot digitally and Brain was at a post. Huh. That's yeah. really impressive, honestly. Kaylee and Kevin are... Um, Two young, young children. Kevin, I believe, is four, and I don't think we get Kaylee's age. Kaylee's but like, in her, probably like seven. Seven or would yeah. be my guess. Older sister. Yeah, but not like significantly. Yeah. Um, it, we don't almost never, not never, but almost never see the characters. There's also their mom and dad. Mom, largely not present in this movie, does show up. Um, her back. Her back. Also, I'm sure, like, I'm not that interested in, like, what is the monster in the, in the like, let me yeah, solve yeah, the yeah, lore yeah. of it, but could be the monster, you know, the faceless monster or whatever it is. Yeah. Who knows? The the mom is the closest thing to a monster that you're going to get. We'll get there. So. Or the dad is. People have mixed on this. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. Okay. Their dad is there at the beginning of the movie, and then he's going to disappear, basically. And so then it is, like. Kevin and Kaylee are stuck in the house. They call nine one one. They don't. They they can't call out. Yeah. All the doors in the house leading out have disappeared, and so it's Kevin and Kaylee stuck in the home, homestuck, if you will. Um, um, you're looking at me. <laughs> um, and and just kind of scared in the way that little kids are scared. Um, and mostly dealing with it by watching cartoons on TV, which is all like archival old cartoons. Yes. Uh, that are in the like um, public domain. Public domain. Um, in order to make this movie cheap. Um, and then also uh, playing with Legos. Yes. And gradually um, things get eerier and eerier and eerier. And it's it's all it's all done by like. It's all done pretty subtly because you're not seeing Kevin and Katie play. What you're seeing is like shots of like the TV they're watching, shots of like you know, an empty door frame, shots of like the light on the ceiling, shots of night lights coming on and off. You don't see characters. What you see is the house. And what you hear is sometimes characters talking. And other times you're hearing the floorboards creak or the sound of the cartoons or whatever. Yeah. Or just um, weird low hums that gra- you know, yeah. that you only hear usually at night in a home. Yes. Gradually, you start to get a sense that there is a monster in the house. Um, the monster, whatever it is, a lot of vague vagueness. I think a lot of it... I think some of the strength too comes from the vagueness because I think a lot of people can read their own 
childhood stuff into this. Yes. Like what what ha- what's happening with the mom and dad could be a divorce. Um, it could just be that the mom vanished first and then the dad vanishes. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be that one of them is the monster. It could be the monster is this analog for some other abuser who's able to get into, who's like, has access to the home. Yeah. You know, and the parents trust to be, then be home with the kids or whatever yeah. while they go out who like, cause a lot of this is also in this weird nightmare space of like, you have like childhood trauma and then it gets mm. all mingled together and, in child brain nightmare yeah space um the monster summons katie or kaylee upstairs well also a key thing that and this is like the beginning of the the eerie stuff but it's probably something that the monster is doing uh but it's also tying into how i'm reading and also why i my emotional reaction to this movie is i started crying at a moment Uh rather than in Really, ever being that scary? I mean, there's some stuff where I was a little this bit creeped out. This movie's fucking scary. Dude. And then there's a moment where I think it's supposed to be one of the scariest moments of the movie, and it like hit like a specific nerve where I started crying, and then I was just sad about the movie the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, Is it the under the bed and then the back? No. Okay. Okay. No, I I will. We'll we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, but so one of the other things is like um, doors, windows the toilet, like things are, like objects are vanishing from the house. Yes. Or are being found in weird locations. Yes. Which one is just like an eerie, creepy thing happening in this house, but I think is also getting at the way that, especially when you have childhood trauma, I think about my childhood at home. And so here, I I told this to Em, you you have not heard this, Mm -hmm. but when I, like while I was watching this movie, I was texting him some as somebody who had already watched it. So just like there's stuff I wanted to talk about immediately. Um, I only have one memory of my childhood home, you know, likely due to trauma stuff. Most of my childhood home, I just, I can't picture what it looked like at all. There's one thing where I can clearly picture something and it was, uh, in, I think in the living room, but it's, I, I don't remember what the living room was. I just remember the specific, like there's the corner where like the room is going to the hallway, which is also something in here. And it was specifically looking up. So it feels very similar to like a lot of the shots in here. Cause a lot of the mm-hmm. shots are at weird angles too. Um, I described the aesthetics of it as a baby monitor. Cause your baby monitor is yeah. usually on some weird part of the wall. So you can try and see a lot of the room, Yeah. but then everything's kind of at like a strange angle and you would never be standing like up high on that part of the wall or whatever. Yeah. And then everything's like weird and grainy and stuff is falling into weird shadow. Uh, and you can kind of see your child, but not really. Um, and then especially when you're first using it, when I was most creeped out by baby monitors is like your child has to sleep in their own room for the first time. Cause you have to try train them to be able to do that so they're not constantly dependent on you to be able to sleep Mm -hmm. and so that you can sleep as a normal human being and get the sleep that you need in the way that you don't when you have a baby who constantly needs like food every two hours or whatever right so you're like trying to reclaim sleep and part of it involves taking your infant and putting them into another room where you no longer are like constantly with them and especially at that point like you have this deep ingrained like if they're not in my sight i don't know if they're okay Mm -hmm. because that's just probably evolutionary you have that urge yeah uh and you're breaking from it and your sleep counselor is like what you need to do is when the baby starts crying you start a timer and first it's like one minute and then it's like two and then it's five and then it's ten and really that's to get you to feel okay with not going in right away Mm -hmm. and checking on the baby when the baby's crying but the baby just needs to like figure out how to sleep and is going to be frustrated and crying during that Mm -hmm. and it you know, there's a a method where you just don't go at all when the baby cries at night. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and that's very hard for parents. So we did this like staggered thing where it then reaches a point where it's like every half hour or something. But so then you're like looking at the baby monitor. You're not sleeping still because the baby's crying and you want to like make sure that things are okay. Mm-hmm. You're staring at the baby monitor while your child is crying. And it's weird because you can hear the child in the room, but faintly. And then there's the weird distorted sound coming from the baby monitor mm-hmm. and your baby's in distress, but you're not supposed to go in because it's trying to, what's really happening is it's just learning how to sleep on its own for the first time, but you're not supposed to go in yet, but you're also having this like weird internal, you are a parent and you're getting these signals that you're supposed to take care of this thing. Uh, and you're not doing that. And you're feeling like all weird about that. And so then it's just like this weird anxiety and it's like, I think a lot of this movie sat in this. And when I was just feeling that, like when the kid falls down the stairs for the first time and cries, mm-hmm. um, I felt it there. Yeah. Anyway, this is completely aside from the one clear image I have of my childhood. Home. I got on a complete tangent about the aesthetics of this. And so now I think it's yeah. a baby monitor horror movie. Kind of. Yes. Um, but, um, so it, it's this like, kind of corner of the room where like the room goes out to the hallway and I can sort of see where the hallway goes the room. And it was like, it wasn't like late at night, but like the sun was down and I could, I can, in my like memory, I can see still footprints on the ceiling. And I said that there are footprints on the ceiling and none of the rest of my family came to check or believed me. That's the one clear memory that I have of like my childhood. Uh huh. Yeah. That, yeah, I see how that gets activated by this movie. <laughs> yeah, so that gets activated by this movie. Uh-huh. But also in ways where, I mean, we, we can get to, I don't know how much more plot synopsis, but. I, I, I was very nearly done. Would we? Okay. <laughs> so, so Kaylee and Kevin are playing together. Kaylee is summoned upstairs by the monster in the house. You get a really fucking tense scene as the dad is sitting on the. Well, so so she walks into her parents' bedroom. This is this is a thing that I remember as, as a kid as like it being weird that you're in your parents' bedroom when you're not supposed to be. You know, it feels like that's like a, a like a thing you're not supposed to do unless you're like brought in there. So you're brought. She goes into the parents' bedroom. They, she doesn't see anybody at first. She walks to her dad's side of the bed, and there's her dad sitting. You didn't see him earlier. He's like, check under the bed. She checks under the bed. I didn't see anything. She checks under the bed again. She comes up. She sees her mom. This is the first time the mom has appeared in the film. Her and the dad see, the seems dad's to gone. be gone or, or yeah. Yeah. Um, She has a conversation with her mom. Her mom tells her to close her eyes. She does. The mom's also like, you know, well, like we loved you or we love you or whatever. Yes. You know? This is the part where like, I think divorce imagery or like connotations can come in. Yeah. I feel totally. like it's a conversation that happens a lot there. Yeah. Of like, this isn't about you. We both love you or whatever. Kaylee opens her eyes again. She turns. And as she's turning to leave, some like some jump scare happens. Uh, and, and Kaylee is more or less gone from the film from this point forward. So now Kevin is um, on like the main floor of the house. There's like the main floor, the upstairs and then like the basement, basically. Um, Kevin is playing by himself. He's brought to the basement by the monster he sees Kaylee now with her um, eyes and mouth sewn shut. He runs upstairs. He hides from the monster. The monster's talking to him. The monster is changing the cartoons on the TV. Um, <clears throat> Kevin attempts to 
call the police again and has a brief conversation with the police. Um, but well, so before the phone call with the police, and so yeah. this is the moment where I like started crying. And then I just like was not having any other emotional reaction to this movie, mm-hmm. which and some of the stuff I was already thinking about my childhood. I was thinking about how like the people disappear, one disappearing objects from the house are like losing memories mm-hmm. of your childhood home. Mm-hmm. You are trying to think back to these traumatic events. Also, so much of this involves like the parents being absent from the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, noticeably, like there's a lot of like, where's dad and stuff. Um, there was also like summoning things around like childhood neglect that I had. Um, and now so then I'm, there's... I'm getting all emotional as we talk, yeah. by the way, I'm getting like, Ooh, I was, yeah. I was just so fucking scared by this movie, <laughs> but now the, now the crying is coming for me too. Yeah. Um, and so then there's the part where the, the monster, which throughout this, like to this point has primarily just been like this weird kind of distorted whispering voice. Yes. Talking to the kids is like, you should go into the kitchen or like, you know, is like going around in the kitchen or something, but like has like a a knife and is like, you should stab yourself with the knife. Yes. And this is the part where I started crying because the the child is like being neglected without parents at home and then follows a weird compulsion to cut himself. Uh Uh-huh. And I was just like, oh yeah, I had self-harm stuff around like, Mm -hmm. you know, neglect and then like, other trauma, being trans and depressed and not knowing that I'm trans and all of that. Yeah. Uh, and that's the part where I just started crying because just like uh, being left, al- being extremely easy to self-harm yourself because your parents aren't at home. That just like hit a, a specific nerve for me where I was then just like sad the, the entire rest of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so Kevin hurts himself. He calls 911. Um, the operator is talking to him. No one is able to come and help. The monster takes the phone away. Um, the monster has a dialogue with Kevin um, and says, like, well, Kaylee didn't listen to me, and so I got rid of her eyes and mouth. Um, and now you need to do what I tell you. Kevin follows the instructions that the monster gives, and then we get... Um... Oh, I just... <laughs> it hit me. Yeah. It hit me. We just get the text 572 days. It doesn't say 572 days later. It doesn't... We do not get any more than that. Just 572 days. And now, what has been extremely, like, grounded. Here is a suburban home. Here are, like, locations in a home that you, the viewer... Because we've gotten so many close-up shots of, like wallpaper or the tv or the legos you the viewer can sort of mentally project so much of your own childhood home into this movie there's such a groundedness to the aesthetics 572 days happens and we are now in like hell void all of a sudden yeah like we we go from a close-up to on the toys to it's like just slowly, slowly, slowly zooming out until like it is an infinitesimal point at the center of the screen and then it goes black. And then it's like you just get this sort of abstract like like blood splatters on the fo- floor. And then like disappears and then kind of comes disappears. Kind of Yeah, there's like this di- weird like cycling of the blood splattering while calling for like mother. Um, Cycling of the blood splattering 
while we hear earlier in the movie, we saw this cartoon and the, the monster was making the cartoon loop of this like bunny rabbit appearing and disappearing, right? Yeah. And as the music of that cartoon plays, we see the blood appearing and disappearing, you know? Yeah. Um, and um, <clears throat> we see like family photos that have been altered in some way, presumably by the monster. And then the last thing, God, I've got goosebumps talking about it. <laughs> um, the last thing in the movie is that you can sort of see the shadow of a face. It's an all black screen and there's just like a slightly dark gray like face thing. Um, and Kevin asks like, "Who? what's your name? And it says, go to sleep. Kevin asks, what's your name? Nothing. The end. Yeah. Um, this movie's so fucking good, dude. <laughs> yeah, I. So for so for me, like, wa- watching the movie, it was intensely scary, in a way that like, in a way that I associate with childhood, in a way that like I remember one night having a nightmare and going to my mom's room and like going to sleep in my mom's bed and like waking up again a few hours later and like she had a little pile of laundry over here and like as I'm waking up I'm like that pile of laundry is a person right and scared the bejesus out of me yeah or I remember the after my parents got divorced the the first place that my dad lived um The, the um the window in my room was facing our backyard so there wasn't any lights out there and i had the cur- i would have like the curtains down and stuff and um before my dad went to bed i would have a, a light under the door of my bedroom but when my dad would go to sleep and he'd turn off the light that home was so dark that I couldn't see like my hand like six inches in front of my face. And I remember I remember a couple things about that. I remember being, oh, this is so scary. It's so dark. I can't even see like myself. And also a fascination with that, oh, this is scary. Like, and like I can't look away from the thing that I am scared of. I have to explore the thing that I am scared of. And this is shit that I have not thought about in 20 years. You know? Yeah. And the 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 way that this movie makes all of that so immediate to me um, was re- just, ooh, it got under my skin. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and then, yeah, as we talk about, like, yeah, I'm not going to get too into, like, stuff from my childhood that leaves me kind of fucked up. But, like, the th- the, the immediate moment of watching it, I'm living with these memories that I've not lived with in a very long time. And then as we talk about it, I'm just getting emotional because like other, other memories connected to those, like most like being scared of the dark early childhood fears, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some of the stuff in this movie too, that, uh, I mean, when at the very beginning when I was getting kind of creeped out by this movie, it was around, like, I found, and 
again, I I was frequently alone at home. Mm. But less is like I there's so little that I remember from when I was a kid. But my my siblings would have been around a little bit more then. But like um when I was in high school, all of my other brothers had gone to uh you know college yeah. whatever. Even when I was in middle school, my parents might be somewhere uh like working or whatever. Uh my brother might be doing like uh sports related things or something. And I might still just be home alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, like even in middle school, I was frequently just left home, home alone. I would come home to an empty house. I was a latchkey kid. Mm. Um, very, very much same. I'm yeah. Like my parents both remarried when I was young, but like uh, on my dad's side, like very much like they just um, weren't around all the time. And then my mom, like her husband, lived like halfway across the country and um my mom had this terrible job that would work her like 14 hour days so i would like come home from school and i would just be you know by myself i have another thing i remember watching this movie is like like when my mom worked nights the like specific like baseball bat that i had that i always kept around like i would be like playing video games on the couch but i would have the baseball bat next to me just in case you know yeah um, um, but yeah. And so when I think, and you know, this is middle school, high school stuff, but, and that was a different home. And I can remember more details of that home in part. Cause I was just there more recently, I guess, um, different memory formation has happened around it. Um, but cause we moved like right when I started middle school. Uh, but I mean, there are times there where I also got like suburban homes are just kind of fucking scary. Cause it's usually, there's not like street lights, So it just gets fucking dark Yeah, outside, like dark, dark. Yeah. Um, and there's tons of doors, mm-hmm. including often these suburban homes will have like big glass, like doors out on the patio, but yeah. And stuff. And so they're like. For a long time, one of my dominant uh, nightmares, in addition to uh, I've always been scared of aliens, mm-hmm. um, it still kind of affects me. Although, like as a kid, I was deeply afraid of aliens. Um, in a way, and now it's like I recognize the irrationality of it. I've mm-hmm. thought a lot about it, and I'm not nearly as scared. But horror movies about aliens can still get to me sometimes. Um, but uh, interestingly, nope, scared me more. Skin of a rink, even though I don't think it's as scary of a movie, like looking at the structure of it. Yeah. Um, but so the early stuff reminded me of like, oh, being in like middle school and uh it being dark because my parents weren't still weren't home and hearing sounds and being like running around and checking to make sure all the doors were locked. So I don't know if somebody's outside. There's one time where I thought I saw like a ghostly face, but I don't know, in a window. Mm-hmm. Like maybe somebody looking in. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I just imagined something because it was for a split second, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that this, like, evoked for me. And I, I was kind of feeling that. And then it, as soon as it started bringing in some of the stuff where I was, like, immediately think Like, as stuff started... The big thing is once stuff started disappearing from the home. Yeah. I just started thinking about how much I've lost memories of childhood. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm already getting this, like, mode where I'm kind of just sad about, like having trauma and not remembering my own childhood as I'm watching this room. Like, yeah, really the only thing I do remember is like watching TV and playing with Legos. Uh-huh. Like that's what I remember of my childhood because that's what I spent a lot of time doing to distract myself from other 
feelings and, I was having. And those are the clearest images in the movie. Yes. You know. Uh, and so I was already thinking thematically about this stuff, where then whenever any creepy new thing, like the the parents' bedroom scene with the dad and the mom, I'm just already in where I'm like, oh, yeah, this is just... Like, a, there's a very early on, I get the point, and then everything else just confirmed to me, where I'm just like, yeah, me too, but I also got childhood trauma to, like, the director of this movie. <laughs> If I was going to make a horror movie uh, about my life, it would be a, a childhood trauma horror movie. And I would go to the like, you know, tiny nowhere Michigan town that I grew up in and try and get, you know, I think the the church has sold that parsonage and someone owns it now. Mm-hmm. Go talk to that person. Be like, mm-hmm. can I shoot a horror movie? <laughs> so. But yeah, and so then it was just, I was already like kind of sad about it. And so then it was just like the scene that the way it's being framed here is different, but it's like essentially a self harm scene. Mm-hmm. That, that was just where I just cried. And then I was just like sad about the movie for the rest of it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Even as it was like doing other weird, creepy things, I was just like, it sucks. Shadow <laughs> 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 drama sucks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, so jokingly, I'm not scared of this movie because you can't be scarier than my own childhood. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, there's also stuff I remember like objects in the like the telephone gets replaced with a toy telephone. Yeah, and things too, like the way that everything gets replaced with like the toy. Uh huh. Um. That I think also becomes a, a thing that then was also hitting me of like how much of my memories are just the video games I played and the shows that I watched. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and also interestingly, which I think you see a fair amount of this, not often the actual things that I built with the Legos, but more just the Legos themselves. You know? Right. Yeah. You sometimes see a little bit of things that are built, but like not really. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say like we we've we've touched on it, but the like. Sound on this movie is really remarkable. Yeah. Um and I thought of it specifically there because the one thing the 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 scariest sound effect, the voice that the monster has is really good. The way in which it's like kind of mom, dad, and Kaylee's voices all in one and then all distorted, you know? That's really yeah. good. The other thing that's uh really fucking got to me is there's, like, a couple times where you hear the monster, like, walking, right? There's a bunch of times you hear the monster walking, but there's a one time where you hear it, maybe two times, where you hear it walking, and it sounds like it's stepping through a, like, ball pit filled with thousands of Legos or something. Like, it feels like, like it is stepping through Legos somehow. Like you were just like picking up handfuls of Legos and that's the sound effect. And I'm like, yeah. Um, but I mean, I think it's also like, it's happening at that moment because the monster, like up until that point, the, the TV and the Legos are keeping the monster at bay. Uh huh. And at that point it's like the, the monster is able to move through the Legos. Uh huh. You know? Yeah. Um, that like this childhood coping mechanism of like I'm just going to like play with things and ignore what's going to happen doesn't actually work. Oh, something else I wanted to say because of like process stuff. Usually we watch movies together, right, for this podcast. Yeah. But because of like the, you know, earlier we talked about like the the weird way this episode came together. 
Sorry, I thought I heard weird sounds in the apartment. <laughs> well, I think Emily's falling asleep now. But... Yeah. Um... Oh, one thing. I am now, I have so many less, uh, I think I told you once that I had like a home invasion dream, but it was like weird where it was just like a person coming in and trying to talk to me about like environmental, like oh, yeah. environmental energy or whatever. Yeah. Thing and, and you stuff. were like, I agree, but you're, why are you invading my yeah, home? Why are you, why are you like, why am I having to like make sure my windows are locked so you won't come in to try and sell me this like clean energy stuff? <laughs> Uh, and I like don't know if I trust the clean uh but I yeah I used to have the home invasion stuff so much but I don't anymore in Chicago even though like I could theoretically be robbed or something Mm. you know but because like I live in an apartment building where there are people above me Mm. like I hear creaking and I'm like oh yeah the person upstairs is fucking still awake right you know uh, it never gets dark here like it does in the in the country it never gets dark here like it does back home yeah you know uh, you can turn off all the lights in your home. You can unplug everything. You could like flip your breaker switches, and there's still just lights coming in from yeah. the outside. Yeah, so you'd have to like put blackout cur- like curtains everywhere and stuff to to get like pure darkness here. I was telling Joe this, um, and I don't remember if I finished the thought I had before this, but that's fine. Um, sound. Um, oh yeah, we were, you were talking about how we watched it. Oh yeah, I was talking about. Um, I don't know how you watch this. I think you told me, but I don't remember. Headphones and laptop. Headphones and laptop. Yeah. Normally, I much prefer to watch movies with you because, like, during Wild at Heart, you and me are talking the whole time. Like, we are having a full-on, like, conversation as the movie is playing. It's not like lean over occasionally, like, tell a little joke or something. It's like you and I are talking through the damn movie. Um... Uh, and I always find that fun because we always find ways to really like kind of get swept up, swept up in the movie, let the movie do its thing. Why? Because you and I are so often like in sync on our reactions to the movies. Yeah. Right. I was so glad that like I watched this, um, <laughs> all the lights off in my home. I had my tablet and my big headphones on. Um, it, I was so glad that I was able to have like a solitary experience with this movie. Yeah. Um, to to that is also part of why I want to go see it in a theater if I'm able to. Um, just because like, I I'm curious how it'll play differently. I don't know that it's, I don't know that it was like meant for like a theater watching experience. Maybe, but like, it does feel like a a movie that is, even if like I'm sure that the director wants it to be in theaters. It's also kind of constructed to be something that you watch alone at night. Yes. I was I was talking to to Cam about it and Cam went and saw this in a theater and they had a really like they it sounds like they also had a like deeply like moving experience watching the movie outside of their own home, you know. But me yeah. being able to watch it in my home, big headphones, big noise canceling headphones on um uh yeah, I had a really good yeah. time. Um, the thing I was talking to Joao about was this was about just like home, um, which is also, uh, you know, the house is scary, right? <clears throat> a lot of like connective tissue between these two things of just like you're in your childhood home and it's scary. Um, yeah. And presumably also like abuse stuff that's yeah seems to be uh, sublimated in, in Skinner Rink, but is there. So, so... I was listening to just like home yesterday and doing laundry in my apartment building. And I like, I was telling you this, 
that I'd never been scared by this before, but I was listening to the book and it really fucking got to me last night. Where so so there's like a lobby ish thing. There's like a big room with like a couch in it, basically, that you could like sit on if you were waiting for something. Uh, and then you pass that and you go up the stairs to where the apartments are. In that lobby, there's a doorway to like. It's still on the same level, but it has the vibe of a basement because it changes from carpet floors to concrete floors. You go in this, and there's like a long hallway. And I know that if I went down to the end of that hallway and turned left, there's an exit there, but I've never had a reason to go out that way. Um, and I'm not always sure if the lights are on down at the end of that hallway. And then if you go halfway down and turn right, there's the laundry room. And on either side of the laundry room, there's like a storage room and a place where people can like store their bikes. And the lights are always off in there unless someone's in there. Um, and I've never seen anybody in there. And like, it's fine because every other day of the year, I am aware I live in the city of Chicago. There's like probably 50, 60, 100 other people living in the like, you know, four stories if above I, me. If I screamed right now, Someone's going to hear it. Someone's going to hear it. They might not immediately do something about it, but if if there's blood-curdling screams coming from me... Yeah. Someone will probably be like, what the fuck is going on? It, well, it doesn't even like enter my mind that this is a like scary place, right? Yeah. It does not even cross my mind once. But listening to Just Like Home yesterday, I like... Walked out of the, I like was noticing, I'm like, well, the lights are off in the bike room. <laughs> Why are the lights off in the bike room where the lights are always off? Yeah. And I like walk out and I like look at the emergency exit sign and I thought I heard a noise from down that way. And I'm like, I'm going to run back up the room. <laughs> um, and then I'm like, just watching Skin and Marine. I'm like, I, I told Joe yesterday because I was telling I was telling him about this and I was, he's like oh is that a problem haha and I was like no I don't think it's gonna continue being a thing but it really got to me tonight it made me jump and then I was like why am I fucked up by watching Skin and Marink the <laughs> this might just be a new this might just be a new problem I have in my life because I'm scared of my laundry room now <laughs> yeah um so yeah. yeah. Well, I'm one of the few people in Chicago with an in-unit washer-dryer, so... If you're ever deathly afraid of your uh, laundry room, you can't go down there, you've got, you got backup options. There's also <laughs> laundromats everywhere. Yeah. Um, there's something about sitting in a laundromat that sometimes is nice and sometimes it's just the worst possible thing you can be doing with your time. And you never really know what it's going to be like until you get there. Laundromats, to me, are like depressing in a like nostalgic way there's a way that i used to get depressed in high school and college that i just don't when i i've now been to enough therapy that when i feel depressed now i'm like i am depressed what are the things i could possibly do to cope with this whereas like when i was in high school and college it would just be like i'm depressed Time to write poetry in my mind <laughs> or whatever, you know, time to like really contemplate the meaning of existence or whatever the fuck, you know, um, time for me to like go stand outside and like smoke and like think about this thing that happened six years ago or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and laundromats still bring that out of me. I don't know what it is. Um, 
Skinner Rink was made for $15,000. That sounds about right. I mean, I, I fully believe it, but that's still, like, just for There's a movie. Pennies. Pennies. That's, yeah. But also, that's, I mean, if it if it was on film, it would be more than that. Yeah. It would. It just, it just would. Um, the Blair Witch Project. I just want to see how much. Yeah. 200000 Yeah. And that's, a, that's the uh, low And a fair end. amount of that, it, yeah, uh, two hundred thousand to seventy, uh, seven hundred fifty thousand. I I would guess without looking at the citation that two hundred thousand is like the budget of the movie, and they were able to spend that much on marketing or something. Yeah. Um. Can you get? Can you give me saw? It, what? Can you give me saw? Oh. Um. I also believe that You've was Blair. Looked Witch. up the Wikipedia article for saws. <laughs> The concept. <laughs> um, 2004 film, one million. Last but not least, can you give me the budget on Texas Chainsaw? Not, not Texas Chainsaw. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> this no, is the 2022 this, film. <laughs> uh, oh, remake of original film. Um, eighty thousand for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So this movie is like a third of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Not and also, even. and also, uh, that's nineteen seventy four. Inflation money. has happened, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, like some of the Blair Witch price is that there were like some special effects stuff that was done that then didn't get um, used smartly. I think. Like, there's, like, shots of the Blair Witch that didn't get used because uh, they smartly identified that it would be... Um, wow. Pre-production budget on Paranormal Activity, 15000 That makes sense. Very similar aesthetic space to this movie. Uh, post-production, 215000 Yeah. I don't know what that means. Um, I've, never, I've never seen Paranormal Activity, so... Um, it's the same fucking article from the other one. What's the most profitable movie ever? Um, um, actually, go up. Go up to the top, because I thought I saw something. Originally developed as an independent feature and given film festival screenings in fifteen in 2007, the film was shot for 15000 It was then acquired by Paramount and modified. Okay, so we, we just got the, like, Skin and Rink didn't get picked up by Paramount, you know? Yeah. Um... Well, and also kind of doesn't in a, I I would assume in a different way. I'll be, I'll be curious to see what Kyle Edward Ball does next. Is this, um, you know, is this going to be like, like so many horror movies become franchised immediately, even as recently as like insidious or the conjuring, you know, um, Does Skinnamarink get franchised or does Skinnamarink become like Kyle Edward Ball is this new auteur, you know? Yeah. Uh, and Skinnamarink is his first one. He Does does he take the, the obviously Jordan Peele is more established, but is that a, a route that is open to him of like, oh, yeah. I just, I'm just going to go see that guy's new movie. Or are we going to get like or are we multiple get movies about the lore of uh, the monster whose name is obviously Skinnamarink? Yeah, right. Or whatever. Which yeah. in this is just this weird, like, Skinnamarinkadoo or whatever, you know, yeah. comic, or the cartoons that they're watching, but... Right, yeah. 
<clears throat> and it's also slightly weird and evocative because it starts with skin. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Um, I guess that do- just about does it. Um, we did little mini plugs earlier, but is there, and you've already plugged off, but is there anything else that you want to? Um, people should listen to Pondering Putan if they're not. People should listen to Pondering Putan if they're not. You do a tarot reading on this last episode that I really yeah. enjoyed. Um, also you plug Pop Town, which I really enjoyed. You do that on every episode, but especially. Yeah. I'm better at, just because I've written it out. At always telling people to do the five dollars here than I'm than I am on ghost divers. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of I already said go to the co-host. I I'm really tired and I have to wake up in eight hours from right, five minutes ago, so I don't want to do more plugs. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> um, also also just to be honest with you, I feel emotionally wrung out after talking about skin and marink, and yeah. I'm sleepy. I really, this movie got under my fucking skin. Yeah, I'm like the, at, the it, it did for me too, but just again, yeah, the emotion that came out was sadness. The the watching the last thing I'll say, the watching of the movie, I was like, wow, that was really scary. That was a really good movie, and now the talking about it, I'm like, oh, there's like stuff here, and I think a lot of that stuff is in projection. You know, yeah, I think that a lot of the, stuff the strength is... of this is that so much stuff is kind of vague that you do project. Yeah, um, but like talking about it, I'm like, oh, there's like more to it than it's just that it's scary. And now it's like sort of in the same way that talking about Wild at Heart made me appreciate Wild at Heart more. Um, I feel like I'm maybe appreciating this movie even more, or maybe in a different way than I was a couple hours yeah. ago. So that's a lot of fun. Um, the thing is, if we get the lore of the monster Skinnerink, I'm going to think it's stupid. If they make a sequel to this, I will simply not watch it. Yeah. I mean, I might watch it and I'll just think it's like, it either has to like really commit to the stuff that it's talking about and doing it in a different way. Like the thematic stuff happening here, or just is going to be lore for this monster. That's the thing is it, and the lore for the monster is just going to be stupid, but I'll still appreciate this movie. That's the thing is that like, if they do a sequel to this. It, I I suspect that it either won't be stupid enough or it won't be good enough. Yeah. It'll probably have like, ooh, there's some stuff here, but it's really bad. <laughs> and I want it to either be really bad or really good. I don't want a follow-up to this that's just more. Oh, I, I looked on Letterboxd. Um, uh, Kyle Edward Ball has one 40-minute short film um, before this called Heck. That uh, seems like it is trading in a lot of the same thematics, but I don't know visually what's going on there by any means. Um, so I'll be, I'm kind of curious. Check that out. I don't know. It sound from reading a synopsis, it sounded pretty similar to Skinnerink. So I don't know that I have a curiosity to check it out like next week, but like I don't know, some point this year maybe. Yeah. Um, Pulse still the scariest movie we've talked about for this show. Yeah. We did watch that one together. It did benefit by us having the lights out and uh, we were having issues with my TV. Plex sometimes doesn't play well with my TV. Yeah. Especially with like really dark movies. Uh, Sometimes like the blocks get weird. Yeah. And it's specifically with Plex. Right. We were watching, we were watching Pulse on my tablet in like your, your apartment with all the lights turned off. God, man, Pulse, dude. 
fucking pulse. I was thinking, I really thought about watching Cure before I came over here, before I realized I didn't have any time to watch Cure. Yeah. I just, I had a hankering for Cure. I love that man in his trench coat. Let's get out of here. Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real. Bella Lugos is dead 
Put your phone away, you're recording. I'm tweeting! <laughs> you can't! I grabbed my phone, you grabbed the record button in the same moment. I, did, I actually watched you grab your phone, and then I was like, it'd be funny to hit the record button and then yell at you for Fuck being you. on you! <laughs> Welcome, listeners, um, to the non-homophobia zone. Yeah. I don't have I don't have like too much else to talk about because we got a lot of movies to get through. Yeah. Um I don't I don't have a funny way to, The thing was that I was going to write a tweet for my locked account and I was going to like type it and then show it to you and be like is this funny and then like and then hit send. But I can't really I don't want to do that. You, part. you can do it. I can talk about how I went to this my second toddler birthday party in 2 weeks. No, let's just get let's just get into the main episode. Okay. I, I don't want to do a long, um, listeners, this will end up coming up in the, during the episode, but, um, I'm running on three hours of sleep and, uh, I, I went and worked an eight hour, so slept from about one a.m., no, two a.m. to five a.m., um, went and worked 6.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Instead of taking a nap, I watched Skinamarink and drank a cup of coffee uh, and now I'm here, and this is, right now, the most awake I felt all day, but we gotta get this podcast going, because I don't know how long it'll last. Also, yeah. I'm back at work at 9am tomorrow, so let's fucking Ooh, yeah. move. <laughs> um, I slept more than you, but I did uh, get a, a rude awakening in the middle of the night uh, of just my toddler waking up, and the the solution is often hungry because that kid like does not properly eat at meal yeah. times because they just want to play and do other things mm-hmm. um and this is like when we're telling them to eat so uh was hungry but that displayed as uh screaming i want to get up at us so <laughs> i'll um i'll probably say in the main episode i'm running on very low sleep I'll give you listeners the full rundown here, which is that I knew I had to be at work at 6.30. I knew I had an alarm set for 10 past 5. So I go to bed at a responsible 10 p.m., right, is when I get in bed. Nice seven hours of sleep, not ideal, but pretty good, right? And then I'd been listening to Just Like Home, which you'll have already heard us talk about in the main episode, and it was really scary, and so I couldn't fall asleep. (laughs) And so I, like get up and I get a water and I go back to bed and I listen to Rocket Ajax for 30 minutes and I still can't fall asleep. So I get up and get some more water. I come back to bed and listen to more just like home. Like, oh, maybe I'll be able to fall asleep if I'm not like hyper fixating on the thing as much. No, I just listened to more of the book. (laughs) Uh, At that point, Nora was done with her D&D game. So I talked with her a little bit, got a little more water. It was also at this time that I realized that part of the issue was that um, my, the, the bedroom was just on fucking fire. The radiator was making it so hot. I had to keep getting up for water cause I was sweating and I had, I was trying to fall asleep. So I didn't realize when I have to wake up early, um, when I'm, when I'm going to work early every day, it's fine. But right now I have one shift a week where I go in at six in the morning, which means that on that one shift a week, I'm always a light sleeper because I have this anxiety in the back of my head. Ooh, I don't want to sleep through the alarm, you know. 
Um, and then adding on to this anxiety is, is we're like, we're getting into like 1 a.m. territory and I'm like, I gotta go the fuck to sleep, but that's making me more anxious. It was a very vicious cycle. Eventually, we turned off the radiator, we put the fan on high, we opened the window, and then I was too damn cold, but that's a better problem to have when I'm sleeping than um, too damn hot, you know? Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. I also have now one day a week when I have to wake up at 5 a.m. It sucks. I mean, normally I have to wake up at like 7. And also because of the content of Just Like Home, I was just dreaming about my own childhood memories all night. Um, it was just a bad time. Yeah. Bad fucking time. Anyway. Um, yeah, I would say I slept for about two and a half hours, then got woken up mm-hmm. by a toddler. <clears throat> then after dealing with that, probably slept for about two and a half more hours. Mm-hmm. And then I had to wake up to take the same toddler uh, to a music class. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was some point today where I was on the sofa, and I think I just lost consciousness for like a half hour. Yeah. So. It, uh, if I had... If I had not gotten, I I really liked Skinamarink. I really liked it. If I kind of liked Skinamarink, I absolutely would have been, I would still be asleep now. Because I like, the only reason that I got up and off the couch was I was like, I'm really liking Skinamarink. I got to finish this. If I didn't like Skinamarink, it's very likely that I would have just impulsively made the decision. I'm going to fall asleep and probably text Nia at 9 p.m. I guess we're not doing Sarah's. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, let's get to the main episode. Akira, me 
Four bow here. Do we want to do two each? Or, yeah. Well, do we want to do we want to do two each right now, or do we want to one each right now? Maybe take another break later. Let's do one each and see how we feel. Okay. That's good. Guess I could pause this, but yeah, you could put this after the um. After the other one, mm-hmm. you could do this like after the after credits. Just hear some chewing noises. <laughs> Just the mukbang part. Yeah. What mm-hmm. we got in here? We got some carrots. We got some celery. They're pretty good. Um, green onion. Mm. We got the dough just right. Or Emily got the dough. I don't know who made. Emily. Okay. That makes sense. I said that and I was like... That was Emily's thing. Mm. She's the baker, which extends to steamed buns. Yeah. I Means she can also cook, but yeah, I'm more the cook. Yeah, you can also bake, but she's more the baker. Mm-hmm. The thing of it is that she likes recipes where like everything's exact mm. in a way where. Um, I enjoy just winging stuff a little more. Are you feeling my other one now? Mm. I'm going to have a sip of my water and just keep podcasting. That's good with you. All right. (sighs) 
I'm gonna have to pee after this bow. I'm gonna probably also pee, and maybe I might get like a, a sparkling water. Just a. How long do you think this episode's gonna be? Um, I have no idea, honestly. I don't have a good sense of it. Just like home, Charles Connor attacks gonna bring. Yeah, it's hard to gauge how long we're gonna go about any of those things, though. Mm-hmm. I'm really, I'm really gonna, I'm gonna give Just Like Home like a really hard sell, like a, like, I really like that book, and I think that if you like this podcast, you'll like that book. I think if you like Just King Things, you'll like that book. And, you know, if you like the films of David Lynch, you'll like that book. If you like the books of Stephen King, you you better fucking like that book. Because it's like a Stephen King book without all the bad shit in it. I said... I'm I'm currently the proud owner of a five-star review of Salem's... I'm go to the bathroom. Yeah. I, I am the <clears throat> proud owner of a five-star review of Salem's Lot on Goodreads. Salem's Lot's a fantastic book. Salem's Lot is also about how the gays are going to kidnap your children and rape them and give them AIDS. Like, I didn't realize that Lem was there. Hello, Lem. Hey, Lem, can I expel you? <laughs> He's like, I prefer that you didn't. Oh, but now that I've woken you up, so now you're going to be annoying again. <laughs> I know your game. Listeners, I'm going to also leave now. Just momentarily. Enjoy this performance of John Cage's 433.
Okay, yeah, Northern Ireland was created in May 1921. So that would have been a little bit before the actual Anglo-Irish Treaty, but it's all, like, in that sort of um, period right before the Civil War. Anyway, um, I just wanted to double-check that, because I can't remember exactly how, uh, like, the timeline of it, because I knew it was all kind of around the same time. Um, um, while you were gone, I looked it up and then set it into the mic, but yeah, Northern Ireland was May 1921, which was before the actual treaty, but like same year. What was that Laura Dern tweet you did? Oh, so there's that, um, comic that's like, uh... Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me. Oh. <laughs> and I'd only ever like glazed over the title and thought it was Laura Dern keeps breaking up with me and thought it was a comic about like repeatedly dating and breaking up with Laura Dern. You thought you thought it was a you thought that this was a Mr. Boop sort of thing. Well, but like funnier and, and like probably more interesting and tasteful. We okay, we've we've definitely talked about this on the show before. But we're still in the non-homophobia zone, so I feel fine just repeating content. Mr. Boop is like, gotta be the least funny thing that's happened on the internet in the last 20 years, right? Yeah, I don't like it. Like, it's especially jarring because, like, the, the War Rocket Ajax guys, one of them thinks it's really fucking funny. And I, like, have listened to them talk about it, and I'm like, truly, deep down in my soul... Mr. Boop is like one of the least funny things that's ever gone viral. The thing is, ever. like, the, the first comic strip went viral the and first comic it was like funny it's like oh i get this in a ha, way ha. that like ha yeah this one viral ha. yeah but then it was like is just like an ongoing comic and you're like what the fuck yeah this is this is this is also how i feel about orson wells tweets which is like that one person did like two or three really funny orson wells voice tweets right yeah and then it became like a meme format, and it's like, what are we fucking doing here? Y'all are not a, like, stop. <laughs> yeah, especially because a lot of it struck me in this way of like, and I don't have it in the same way anymore. Hmm. But uh, when I worked at Media Burn, I listened to a lot of stuff from Studs Terkel, mm-hmm. and also because I was watching a bunch of like archival tapes of Studs Terkel, I was also reading a number of his books. And so there is a period in my life where I could do just an absolute spot on Studs Terkel like impression. I could just like fully nail, like I could write out just the way that he talks as a person. Yeah. And I just couldn't do that now. And if I did that and it got viral, people would try and like mimic it. People don't know Studs Terkel and the way people know Orson Welles. Right, but, yeah. You know. But they wouldn't, like, have that familiarity of just, like, it felt like the original was from an actual observation of, like, the ways that he talks and not just, I'm talking kind of pretend, I'm just tweeting something kind of pretentious and, mm. and like, uh, biting or mean. Yeah, that's the that's the other thing is that, like, most, there are, there are a lot of Orson Welles tweets that are just, like, I'm just saying a thing that's mean and it's like, I don't Orson Welles, I don't think, is, like, a, a fundamentally, like, hmm, 
Orson Welles is, I think, a fundamentally mean person, but I don't think that's like his only trait, you know? Yeah. Like the, the meanness is like subserving into like a very sharp, like critical mind, you know? Yeah. Anyway, let's get back to the main podcast. Um, I took this photo to do a, f- a funny tweet and then I didn't, but I was walking past, um, it was a, a restaurant that's, cl- I think it's a restaurant called Gideon Wells. Uh-huh. But a sign was covering the G's, so it said EDO and Wells. And I, <laughs> and I was trying to think of like a, a funny tweet to do around like, you know, someone doing a meme of like, name a classic anime to be directed by a classic director or something, and then it being EDO and Wells. <laughs> anyway, tell me about. Wait. Tell me about Just Like Home. Just Like Home is a novel.